Hey, deserving listeners, today's episode is a deep dive on dissociation. This is going to be part two of the loneliness series that I've been working on. It's not super related to loneliness, but I think by the end of this, I think it will be related enough to loneliness. And also, this episode is just for patrons only. So I'm going to have a bit of an intro here, and if you're not a patron, it'll end early. And if you want to listen to the full episode, you have to become a patron at patreon.com. Another caveat here is this is a major trigger warning for you all. No joke. If you suffer from PTSD, dissociation, or some other trauma syndrome, or even you're suspicious that you suffer from trauma or trauma syndrome, I would seriously consider not listening or listening with your therapist's permission or listening in short bursts. I'm really serious about this. I know some of you out there well enough to know that it would be not uh, healthy for you to actually just barrel through this episode without taking some precautions. And if you're not sure, don't listen and or talk to your therapist or listen with your therapist. It's, it's very important because dissociation is related to trauma and to talk about dissociation, particularly the causes and the experience can absolutely trigger one's dissociation. Now, there's nothing wrong with dissociating. It's, it, it happens. But if you are unaware or don't have the coping skills yet that therapy can provide, it can be quite uh, dysregulating. So really major trigger warning. So dissociation. Well, in a nutshell, what it is, is when you check out, you're, you're traumatized or you're highly distressed, and our brains have this evolved mechanism, apparently, that allows us to separate ourselves from the event to protect ourselves. Think of it like there's a mechanism in the brain that says, ooh, this is too intense for this person to handle. Let's dial down the perceptual, the perceptual uh, systems. Let's dial down the memory systems, maybe even turn it off. Because, yeah, it's good to, you know, like if you see a tiger in the wild or a saber-toothed tiger, it's coming after to kill you in the wild and or a snake, that whatever, some sort of danger. And it uh, there's only so much you need to remember about that, right? That that creature can harm you. But you don't have to remember the gory details, like the way it ripped apart your brother or something. You don't have to remember every little detail of that moment. You have to remember some of it, but not everything. And and if you remember everything, then that can be overwhelming to the system. And actually, that can be the basis of PTSD. Anyway, the point is, is that dissociation is an evolved mechanism that's normal that we all have to separate our our perceptual systems, our memory systems, our consciousness systems from what is happening so that we don't have to deal with it. it it's, and it's analogous to uh, if you don't like horror movies and that freaks you out, you just don't watch horror movies. <laughs> Your brain says, that movie is going to give me nightmares and so I'm just not going to watch it. Well, our consciousness has this ability to say, that event is not going to do well for our psyche. Let's not pay attention to it. Let's pull back from it. Okay. Now, there are various different types of dissociation, which I'll get into in a second. 
Now, dissociation in our society and to some extent in my field of mental health, it is simultaneously unknown. Lots of people, particularly in society, most people do not know what dissociation is. Most people understand what depression is, anxiety is. There's a growing awareness of PTSD, this kind of thing. But dissociation is something that is largely unknown to, to society. And a lot of clinicians also don't know about it well enough, and they definitely don't know how to treat it. So we simultaneously uh, are ignoring or unaware of dissociation and simultaneously frequently depicting it in movies and TV shows like Fight Club, Lord of the Rings with Gollum, Mr. Robot, The Born Identity with Matt Damon, Get Out. Uh, these movies and many more, which I'll get into later, depict dissociation in some respect. So we have it in movies and TVs a lot, and yet in our society, we have almost no knowledge or no conversation about it. And it makes sense that it's at least clinically hard to grasp. It's complicated. It It's easy to understand concepts like depression or anxiety for whatever reason. And graduate school just isn't long enough to train people well enough for dissociation. I didn't really get dissociation until I maybe a decade into my career when I actually started working with people who specialized in it. They, they were supervising me. And I was treating people who suffered from dissociation, and I would uh, talk with them, get to know their experience in the room, you know, one-on-one, long conversations where they describe dissociation to me, maybe even dissociate in the middle of session, describe what it feels like. Then I would go back to my supervisor. He would tell me, this is what you're looking at. This is what's happening. And then I'd go back in. It's a very complicated thing. Most mental health uh, professionals at most get like a week of training of dissociation from a book. And maybe they watch like a vignette of an actor who's acting like they have dissociation. Maybe they watch a couple of YouTube videos or something. And that's it. And if they if they don't have good supervision or good enough experience in their internship or postgrad uh, early postgrad, then you can be 10 years in as I was into my career and really not grasp dissociation very well. The other thing is, is dissociation is pretty common. So it's not like it, we're ignoring something that is rare. It's actually pretty common. At the low end, we're looking at about 2%. At the higher end, we're looking at about 5 plus percent of people will qualify for a dissociative diagnosis at some point in their lives. That's a lot of people. So at the low end, we're talking about 150 to maybe 200 million people around the world, just millions upon millions of people around the world suffering from dissociation, which is, you know, another uh, indictment on how we treat our fellow humans by traumatizing them so often. Uh, the other thing that I'll say is that nearly everyone will experience mild dissociation at some point. Think of moments where you're daydreaming, you're in class, or maybe even right now, <laughs> and my droning voice is boring you, and you start to daydream, and you're like, oh, wait, what was just happening? You, you sort of check out for a bit. Now, that might not necessarily be uh, trauma-related, but our brains, that our conscious mind, our perceptual centers, our memory centers, our executive functioning, 
has a tendency to focus on certain things outside of our volitional control or our noticing our volitional control. So daydreaming or spacing out or a common one that's always talked about is while you're driving and you zone out and you don't remember the last you know number of miles, maybe maybe you drove for a half an hour and you don't even remember driving. You're just like, whoa, uh, I think I just drove on autopilot and I was daydreaming the entire time or I was listening to a podcast and not really paying attention. So this is otherwise known as the high as highway hypnosis. It'll sometimes be referred to. So this is akin to dissociation, if not just flat out mild dissociation. The other thing is that 50% to 75% or higher of people around the world will have a full-blown dissociative episode at some point in their life. Now, just having one episode of depersonalization doesn't usually qualify you for the full-blown DSM label, but it is a full-blown episode. Usually in response to stress, people can have these sorts of uh, experiences or even just anomaly, anomalous brain things, which actually happened to me when I was younger. And I'll talk about that as well. So not only do all of us have mild dissociation like spacing out, but most of us have had at least one episode of full-blown dissociation, whether even if it was just for five minutes where you didn't feel connected to your body or you had an outer body experience or you didn't feel connected to the world. Now, sometimes this can be drug-induced, sometimes it can be stress-induced, but uh, that's another thing to point out. So in this episode, I'm going to talk about the types. My dog is barking. I don't know if you can hear that. <laughs> there must be someone delivering a package to the front door. In this episode, I'm going to talk about the types of dissociation, of which they're pretty complicated. I'm going to talk about the complications to, uh, to dissociation, the causes, the signs. And I'm going to talk about the experience of, of um of dissociation because that's really important because if when you read the symptoms you're like okay but when you actually hear from people who suffer from dissociation what it's like you get a much better picture and a lot of you have actually emailed into me your experiences i also have some descriptions from reddit but it mostly is from patrons and listeners i'm going to go into the history of the term dissociation we're going to talk about dissociation in movies and tv I'm going to talk about treatment, not in full detail because I don't have the time, but um, but a good amount of you know uh, talking about how to treat dissociation as a mental health person, and we're also going to answer some email questions related to dissociation. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I am your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I am a therapist and I'm also a professor. This episode is just for patrons of the podcast, so if you're not a patron of the podcast, this episode is going to end right now uh, before the content begins. This is going to be a two- or three-hour episode. If you want to hear the full episode and you're not a patron, go to patreon.com and become a patron of the podcast. When you do so, you'll receive instructions on how to get access to all of our premium episodes, of which there are hundreds. We have, I don't know, 200 premium episodes. I don't know, some, somewhere around that. And those are our best episodes. Those are the episodes I spent the most time uh, researching, the, the most care, crafting. And also know that uh, a certain amount of your pledge goes towards various charities that we support. More recently, we've been giving scholarships out, thousands of dollars to people who are making a difference in the world and who plan to make a difference in the world. 
Also, we're uh, offering an art grant. Uh, if, if you're interested in the scholarship or the art grant we're currently running, go to our website and get information. Also, join our Facebook page, our official Facebook page, because we talk about our Instagram. So if you haven't become a patron, do so now. Do it, do it, do it. All right, welcome to the Patron Zone patrons. So glad you became a patron, patron. <laughs> That's a lot of patron words in one sentence. All right, let's go into the types. So the first one let's talk about here is dissociative identity disorder. In a nutshell, dissociative identity disorder in response to early childhood trauma uh, results in people having distinct identity states different identities that are distinct from each other that are states of being. So one state will be a, a, per, a person who is uh, of a certain personality that does really well at work. They're very competent. They're very easygoing. They are good at communicating. And then the person with dissociative identity disorder or DID will have another state where they will be good as in romantic relationships, romantic moments. There's another identity state. This is just for example. Not everyone has this, obviously. There's another identity state where they are very good at standing up for themselves. There's another identity state where they feel very young and very scared. That identity has a lot of fear, early childhood fears. Another identity state is the person who kind of coordinates other identities and takes care of the other identities. Now, sometimes these alters, as we call them, this used to be called multiple personality disorder, if you didn't know, but the, uh, these different alters sometimes know about each other and sometimes they don't. Sometimes they share memories together, sometimes they don't. It really is person to person. Sometimes you have just two different identity states. That's not usual. Usually it's more than that. But it can be as low as two different alters. Or you can have uh, a hundred, over 100 alters. There are cases like that. It's usually around 10, 20, 30 uh, uh, alters. And if you wanted to learn more about this, we've talked about this in past episodes. But, uh, but the episode I really want to direct you to is number 978, which came out in October 23rd, 2019, last year, and it's titled Her Story of Erotic Transference and Dissociative Identity Disorder. This is an episode in which we talk to patron Liza about her experience with dissociative identity disorder. I recommend you listen to that. Absolutely. It's also a, just a wonderful episode about how erotic transference and how corrective emotional experiences, corrective attachment experiences are critical to helping people recover from a variety of issues, including a lifetime of trauma, which Liza had experienced. So listen to that. Uh, again, that's her, her story of erotic transference and dissociative identity disorder. So to describe DID, I have an email from someone here. I wasn't aware of what I had until a few years ago. Through meditation, I had stumbled into my own healing. I feel very lucky and I don't lose time. I, 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 feel, I feel very lucky that I don't lose time. In public, I would say I have 100% control 
At home, where it's safe, I would say I allow the emotional growth that comes with letting them speak and spending therapy time with them. It's still a struggle day to day to control the pieces inside me that try to lash out, but I try to look at those as opportunities to make good choices. The most flushed out of my altars would probably be Cornelius. It has been fascinating watching them grow, learning what they are like, and utilizing the teamwork that comes from our skills. End of email. So this is a uh, this might be somewhat uh, alarming or I don't know surprising to people that people with DID now I think wonderfully uh, often gravitate towards a point of view where they consider having DID to be a strength that their different alters their different identities are. A blessing that they they like, you know, this person says, uh, utilizing the teamwork that comes from our skills. I'm guessing what they mean is they one altar is really good at this and another altar is really good at that. And they can rely on each other and help each other and enhance each other, complement each other. But at the same time, this person is saying that at home when it's safe, the certain things start to come forward and in public they're saying i have i have control meaning that probably one altar tends to go out into the world but at home various different altars come out and the some altars are trying to lash out i don't know what that means exactly i I would imagine that would be maybe anger maybe calling people on the phone or emailing or texting nasty things to people uh, out of anger I don't know exactly what that means, but <clears throat> and that they have discovered they have uh, one particular altar that has a different name, Cornelius, and that's common too. That people will have different names for their different altars, not always, but but often they will. So, uh, uh, also the other part to this that might be surprising is that the goal of DID treatment isn't necessarily integration. It it it. it it's intuitive to believe that <clears throat> the end result of good treatment of DID is to no longer have DID. Because that's true for a lot of other disorders, right? When you're treating depression, successful treatment means you no longer have depression. You no longer feel down. You no longer have lack of motivation. You no longer have sleep disturbances. You no longer have suicidal thoughts. But when it comes to DID treatment, it is mo- most most often, not always, sometimes it is a matter of helping people to integrate, and that is possible, for some, meaning that all the identities merge into one identity with different modes. Because all of us have different modes, right? Like right now, I'm in podcaster mode, which means that I'm trying not to swear, I'm trying to stay <laughs> academic, I'm, I'm trying to sound like an easygoing professor. <laughs> I've never really thought about that. Uh, but I guess that is the persona. Whereas in another persona, when I'm on the couch with my wife watching reality TV, I'm in a different mode. You know, I'm slouched over. <laughs> I've got crumbs on my chest from whatever chips I'm eating. And I'm, you know, barking at the TV. <laughs> you know, it's it's different mode. Okay, well, these two modes, these two aspects of myself are integrated, but 
One will come to the fore during a particular moment. Right now, the podcaster part of me is coming forth. But they're not separate identities. I don't feel like they're separate personalities. We all, these two modes don't have different experiences or personality in particular. And and it's not as if I can't be both at the same time. Like, I could be on the couch with crumbs on my chest and also go into podcaster mode if I felt like it, you know what I mean? Anyway, so the idea was in the past was for the idea was that you want to integrate every, all the alters so that the person becomes one identity in the way that I have one identity and, uh, and with different modes, but, and certainly that can happen, but the the more uh, recent research and practice is to help people to manage their uh, condition, their different alters. And as this person is saying, that it's been fascinating watching my different alters grow and to learn what they like, to, to learn about each other and to, to be a team and to work as a team. And that's, that's the more common goal with DID is like, to help people to manage it and also to provide therapy to each altar. You know, one altar needs a lot of trauma therapy. Another altar needs self-esteem work. Another altar needs anxiety help. Another altar needs assertiveness training. And maybe another altar needs all, all of them. And therapy is more geared towards that rather than trying to force the person to integrate, which one might not be possible. <clears throat> That's what they found. And two, just kind of, uh, I don't know, denigrates the the condition or the, I don't know, the way that their identity is situated. In the same way that if someone were to be trans and they were born one way and felt another way, uh, you in the past we would try to get them to not do that anymore, to make them feel like the way their body uh, was. But over time, we're like, well, why are we pathologizing? Why can't they just be who they are? What's wrong with them feeling one way about themselves and their body being a different way? Well, DID is a similar thing. Why can't someone have many different alters and have that be okay? A lot of the suffering of DID, not all of it, but a lot of it comes from the stigma and the shame and the inability for society and family members to adjust. And, and so a lot of it has to do with getting everyone else on board. If, if you have a client with DID, you want to you bring in family members so that they can understand what's happening. It, it usually results in the person with DID saying, okay, mom and dad, okay, spouse of mine, okay, children of mine, okay, people at work. I have DID, and here are my different uh, alters. You might have experienced these three alters. Well, I have 15 other alters, and here's what they do, and here's what they look like, and here's what triggers me. And you could all help me out by doing this and this and this, and obviously not stigmatizing me, maybe helping me out with my memory sometimes, but it would really help me out if you were cool with it. And we're getting to a world right now where a lot of people are being able to do that with their uh, support system, which is just fantastic. It really wasn't that way before. 
So if we look at DSM criteria, they are uh, paraphrased as thus. Uh, again, previously called multiple personality disorder. Discontinuity of self. So you have a discontinuous self. Alter- and the, and the, these distinct alters will have alterations in affect, behavior, consciousness, memory, perception, cognition, and or movement. Meaning that different alters may have a different emotional uh, tendency. They might have different behaviors that they do. One might be very sexual, while the other alters might not be. They might have a different consciousness. They might have different memories. They might perceive the world differently. They might have a different uh, way of thinking. One might speak very fast or think very fast. Another alter might think and speak very slowly and, and or movement. One might move with confidence. The other might move with uh, low self-esteem. Not always, though. In the movies, sometimes they depict this where each alter has a very, very distinct way of looking. And that can be true for sure, but, but not always. In, in my experience, different alters, unless you really knew someone, you wouldn't, you wouldn't notice like, oh, wow, they're a different person right now. Usually it's, you have to really know someone to know, oh, I think we're in a different alter. I'll just tell you, for me, treating DID especially in the beginning, I have to, I have to rely on the client to tell me who is in the room because I usually can't tell. <laughs> uh, I'm usually like, uh, you know, it's, it's so anyway, the point is, is it's not obvious. Uh, another DSM criteria here is criterion here is, uh, it, these alter switches might be observed or they might not be meaning that you might notice or you might not. There are memory lapses, which are not always uh, pronounced, but they can be very pronounced sometimes. One alter, uh, you can shift from a, to a different alter, and then a couple days later shift back to the original alter and not remember anything that happened in the past couple days. And, you, and there's no way to get those memories for, for many people. You just have to rely on either other alters to tell you what happened or other people telling you what happened while you were uh, in a different alter state. And also to qualify for the DSM uh, label, you have to have significant distress. So this is where it's interesting because, like I said before, you can have DID and not suffer significantly. You can learn to live with it. You can provide therapy to your different alters so that they can all feel okay and work together and grow together. And you can, and people do, go on Instagram and post, I am a, I am a plurality. So when you talk to me, refer, I'm going to refer to myself as we. We are a plurality. And when you talk to us, I would appreciate it if you referred to us as a group because each one of my uh, each one of our alters are really distinct from each other and want to be respected in that way. So, so you can you can have the DID condition, meaning you can have different alters, but not qualify for the DSM label because it no longer causes significant distress. And that's interesting, right? It's it's a unique DSM label in that way. 
not not incredibly unique, but it's rare. Because like I said, with depression, when you no longer have the symptoms of depression uh, to the degree that you qualify for the label, you just no longer, you both no longer qualify for the label and you don't have depression anymore. So with DID, you can still have DID, but not qualify for the label. Prevalence it, for each particular year, there's about one and a half percent of people suffer from DID. So for a lifetime prevalence, it's higher than that. But at any particular time, one and a half percent of the population is suffering from DID. And it's slightly more male men than women. Uh, they don't, in the DSM, talk about non-binary people, which is a problem in our field, which I find to just be ridiculous. But the DSM and most research just refers to men and women or males and females. Slightly more men with DID than women. So like a 55, 45% thing. Which is interesting uh, when you consider all the stereotypical or media presentations of people with DID. DID is typically presented as a as a female condition, or at least in the 70s and 80s and 90s. Maybe it's changing more lately. But when I just think of a quintessential person with DID, I think of a woman because that's what's been pumped into my head from the media and maybe from professors. I don't know. But a little bit more men suffer from it than women. So when you think of DID, just think of, uh, don't think of gender. It's because it's not associated. Also, the course, the development of dissociative identity disorder. Some people think, well, kids don't have DID, right? You know, a, a five-year-old can't have DID. That doesn't make any sense. Well, so here's the thing. DID is, in a lot of dissociative disorders, are developed from early childhood trauma. This is well known. So we're talking age one, two, three, four, five years old. When you are terrorized at that early, that the way to look at it is, it seems as though, as I said earlier, we developed a, through evolution, a mechanism to protect us from terrible events by pulling away from reality or even ourselves. And when you are terrorized repeatedly as a child, then you end up having a, a temporary coping mechanism become habitual, meaning that at the slightest hint of a threat, as an adult, you will be thrown into dissociation instead of reserving dissociation for extreme events. So for those people who were repeatedly traumatized, terrorized, made to be uh, the, the, the sort of trauma that results in, uh, in dissociation is a, is a state of terror, a state of extreme fear and powerlessness. And when you are exposed to that repeatedly, essentially the brain says, huh, well, when in doubt, let's dissociate because it usually, you know, when we have a little bit of distress, it usually means bad things are coming. So let's just, let's just play it safe and let's just dissociate at the first hint of anything bad happening. And that ha habit is, is perpetuated into later life. My cat wants to chime in. So that habit is retained into later in life where you're 45 years old 
and your boss looks at you funny and that old habit when you developed when you were three years old says, well, any hint of threat means, you know, we got a 50-50 chance of this being a horrible event. So let's kick, let's kick in our dissociative process. And it is not appropriate or helpful to that particular moment. The person will be thrown into dissociation. Plus, dissociation can carry with it a lot of issues. Now, we're talking about dissociative identity disorder right now. So, uh, so there's that. Anyway, uh, so people will say, well, kids don't have DID, right? And the thing is, is, yeah, of course they do, because it's not like you become traumatized at the age of three, and then you have this period of time where you don't have DID, and then suddenly it emerges when you're an adult. Now, here's the other thing. Detecting DID in children is very hard because kids play or behave in very distinct personality state sort of ways. There's the kid who likes to play in the playground, and there's the kid who's very shy, and there's the kid who doesn't want to take a nap, and there's the kid who likes to be helpful, and there's the kid who wants to regress and talk like a little child, and there's the kid who wants to be very competent in the world, and there's the kid who can do homework, and there's the kid who decompensates when there's anything going wrong in their life. And that's normal. So how do you distinguish normal six-year-old volatility? Uh, how do you distinguish that and uh, uh, DID? It's hard. So a lot of it has to do with just the difficulty of assessment in children. The other thing is that uh, it's, it's hard to know if a kid has DID because if you'd have to ask them their experience and it's hard for adults to know they have DID, let alone a child. And how do you distinguish? Uh, anyway, the point is, is it's hard to assess. It's hard to notice. It's hard to get them to talk about it if they do have it. It's also possible that for some people, they have alters that don't that stay submerged most of the time while they're children, and then later in life. These other alters are more free to come to come out. So it's complicated. But the thing to remember is that DID is developed early in life, as with all dissociative disorders, and uh, and it and it lasts into adulthood is the thing usually. Um, now there are some cases where. It seemed, DID seemed to have emerged later in life. You'll have a 30-year-old who goes through some amount of stress for whatever reason, and all of a sudden starts experiencing different alters. Now, why would that happen? Well, it's hard to know because there's no scientific way of measuring this, but my speculation is that they always had DID due to early childhood trauma, and the adult stressor exacerbated it or pushed it over the edge to it manifesting in adult life. So that's my way of seeing it. Of course, there's no way to know that for sure. But some people very rarely will claim no trauma or no past DID, and then all of a sudden, boom, they have it. But that's not, that's not usual. 
usually what people will say is, you know, they're 22 years old and they think, eh, there's always been something different about me. Or, yeah, I, I lose uh, memory chunks frequently. You, you know, sort of that emerging understanding of one's DID can be uh, very, con- they can be very confused by it. Now, some people are 22 and since they were 15, they're, they're just very aware of these different parts of themselves. They might've been ashamed of it, but part of them is okay with it. Some people will be, as I said, completely unaware of what's happening. Many people will think they're going crazy. Usually people with DID, when they show up into treatment, it's usually for some other reason. It's usually because they're suffering because remember that to have DID, you have to have been significantly traumatized when you were young and the trauma, uh, early childhood trauma usually doesn't only result in DID. It usually also results in depression, maybe a personality disorder. And by the way, you can have some alters have personality disorders while other alters don't. So, and you can have self-esteem issues related to the trauma. And so you can have an anxiety. So usually people come into therapy for these other reasons. You can also have relationship problems as an adult because of your, your DID, and that might bring the person into therapy. And then over time, the, if the therapist knows what they're doing, the client might start to wonder, you know what, I think I might have DID because, yeah, I do have blackouts where I just don't even remember what happened. And my wife will tell me stuff that happened two days ago and I, and I just have no memory of it. And I, I usually just try to cover it up like, oh, you know, me and my memory problems. And so there's that. Um, sometimes people will come in because of substance abuse because, again, with all of the problems that come with trauma it can often result in attempting to numb the pain through substances and so that can bring people into therapy anyway all right let's talk about another uh, type of uh, of dissociation and this is actually not in the dsm but is it is in the icd-11 which is called partial dissociative identity disorder so the, IC, the ICD-11 is kind of cool because it has more in there. For some reason, the DSM, they're real stingy about what they put in. I don't know why, but, uh, but ICD sometimes allows more in. Anyway, so there's this other label, which I really appreciate, called Partial Dissociative Identity Disorder. So it's, it's, it's DID, but, and according to ICD, I'll just read it, the non-dominant personality states do not recurrently take executive control of the individual's consciousness and functioning, but there may be occasional limited and transient episodes in which a distinct personality state assumes executive control to engage in circumscribed behaviors, such as in response to extreme emotional states or during episodes of self-harm or the reenactment of traumatic memories. End of quote. So, in this, uh, for this uh, label in the ICD, it is you essentially have a dominant personality state, a dominant alter, and then every once in a while, this other state will emerge, usually in response to an extreme situation. This is different from DID in that there are with people with DID tend to have they they often won't have a dominant alter. 
they might have an altar that uh, likes to interface with crowds or interface with new people, but they they sometimes don't have a dominant altar. Now they might have a quote unquote dominant altar, but but the point is is with with partial DID described in the ICD, most of the time there's a dominant altar, and then say when uh, a sexual trauma is triggered, boom, this this other altar comes forward. But it might only come forward once a year or something like that. And it's not a it's not another state that can talk with the other altars, if that makes any sense. Because usually with DID, the altars, they're full people, if you know what I'm saying. The, these other altars are full personalities. Whereas with partial DID, these other altars will come forward, but they're not like full, they're not fully realized personalities usually. Anyway, so this person wrote in and, uh, to the podcast describing their situation, and I think it describes it pretty well. And the person writing in uh, had a lot of details about dissociation in general, not just about partial uh, dissociative identity disorder. And I don't know if this person actually identifies as someone with partial DID. Um, it just sounded like partial DID. And of course, I can't know for sure based on an email, but it just seemed to be in that category, perhaps. Anyway, I drown in my dissociation. It starts in my toes, tingling like the ocean rolling to the shore. My vision gets clouded. It then covers my body, similar to sinking your face under a hot bath. I have lived in this for as long as I don't remember, and I am com- comfortable with it. For example, when I was in middle school, we lived in a small town, and there was a teen dance at the school. My father and sister came to pick me up. They saw me walking alone in the soccer fields, not inside with the other kids. My father and sister called out to me, but I ignored their call. I walked into the rec center and then walked out 10 minutes later with all of my normal friends. My sister has told me, my sister has told me that in the car I wouldn't admit to leaving the dance. I would only say I was there the whole time. I don't recall any of the event and don't really know why I was over past the soccer field, especially because my friends were not with me. So just chiming in here, if you didn't quite catch those details, she's talking about a moment when she was in middle school where her family came to pick her up from the dance and they saw her wandering around in the soccer fields by herself. And she uh, walked, apparently started walking to the dance and her family called out to her and she didn't respond. And then she walked out a little bit later with her friends and was like, what are you talking about? I wasn't in the soccer fields. Who? No, you must've been talking about someone else. I've been in the dance the whole time, but the emailer believes her family because she has a pattern of doing this sometimes where people will say you did this and that. And she'll be like, uh, I don't remember anything about that. So, Could this be something else? Yeah. And I'll get into the differentials later. It could be like a, like a seizure of some kind, but it, and I'll, let me continue with the email here. So that alone, that little anecdote alone, we wouldn't know enough about as an adult. I, I don't have access to countless memories because of trauma. 
Sometimes I will be given new information by people around me like my sister. Okay, just chiming in here. So we have trauma and that she's saying she doesn't have access to countless memories. So uh, that's another indication of potential dissociation. But let's, let's get to another uh, story here. This also happened with my first ever boyfriend. I found out what may have happened on one of those nights I previously spoke about. I told him I wanted him to be the one to take my virginity. He stated cautiously, oh, you don't remember? I, rem- I remember the, the pit drop to my stomach. I, in shock, I asked him, what does that mean? He then told me how we once went for a walk during, during the dance in the woods close by. Wait. Uh, anyway. Um, I seemed drunk but frisky, and we had sex on the ground in the woods. I asked details, trying not to seem surprised about it, but then I freaked out while he was telling me the details about it. I laughed, thinking he was joking. Instead, he got scared and said it didn't actually happen, and he was just joking, but his tone was speaking in a way of guilt. He promised he was lying, but I believe there was some truth. So just chiming in here. So she's talking with her boyfriend uh, a while ago, and she is saying, so I'd really like to lose my virginity to you. And then he's like, but we already had sex. (laughs) And she says, "Uh, what? what? I, I don't remember that. And then he says, well, not that long ago, we were in the woods, and I don't know, you seemed kind of drunk. You seemed kind of different. And we had sex like in the woods. And then she starts to freak out. She's thinking, because imagine that. Imagine someone's telling you that uh, without being drunk, you had sex with someone and you don't even remember it, especially the very first time you had sex in such a noticeable, memorable way. And you have zero memory of it. So this is more data for the partial DID because the individual here, the emailer, is saying that this other state was perceived by others to be kind of different, drunk but frisky. And she doesn't have any memory of what happened. And she was traumatized growing up, maybe sexually. So maybe uh, she was thinking about having sex with him And this very rarely called upon altar came forward. But to do that act, because the overall self or all the selves were afraid of having sex and having it be a recreation of something bad. So this other altar comes forward uh, either to protect the rest of the self or some other mechanism, has sex for the first time. And that other self might be very sexualized. It might be that self that was that experienced a lot of the trauma growing up, but it's a very rarely called upon altar, and it and this other altar might not even really have a full identity. It might just be like an altered state of mind, if you will. Uh, so, going on with the email here, it is scary to feel that out of control, and you can't stop your past self from what already has happened to your own body. The sexual, physical, and emotional trauma from when I was a child taught me this was the safest thing for me to do because I was told 
I have nowhere better to go. Dissociation can be dangerous. Systems shut down for protection of the mind, but not the body. But I don't hate my dissociation because it has saved me at times. And therapy has helped me, but I still have a very long way to go. End of email. So again, this person with what looks to be partial DID is saying, look, I don't hate it. It's really saved me in a lot of situations. It helps to check out of terrible situations, particularly when I was young. So I see that as a strength. I don't see it as a negative. I'm in therapy and I have a long way to go, but I feel like I'm getting better. And it's really terrifying to think about what is happening to my body when I'm not aware of things. Again, just to be clear, I don't know if that person emailing in has a partial dissociative identity disorder, but it just kind of sounded like that. It it sounded like a, a good example of that. All right, number three. So we talked about DID. We've talked about partial DID. Now let's talk about dissociative amnesia. So in a nutshell, dissociative amnesia is just flat out forgetting traumatic events. So remember with DID and partial DID, you're going to have memory breaks because different alters will come forward. And if, if the current alter doesn't have access to the memories of that other alter, then there's going to be a complete amnesia of that event for that alter. But one of the alters does remember what's happening. Now, I will say that it's possible to have DID and dissociative amnesia, but let's not get into that. So dissociative amnesia is not different alters. So you you only have one personality, one alter, one identity. You don't have distinct identity states. But uh, in moments of trauma or difficulty, the the all the person will forget those there's a you know a dissociative mechanism that protects the self from those memories by just forgetting them sometimes this is called psychogenic amnesia sometimes in internet terms they'll call it psychosomatic amnesia but the correct term is psychogenic so the dsm criteria are the inability to recall important autobiographical information, usually of a traumatic or stressful nature, although they do realize they are experiencing the memory loss. So meaning that they don't remember something and they also know they don't remember. So they're like, it's weird that I don't remember that whole chapter. The amnesia can be a block of time for uh, you know, just a, a short amount of time, just a couple hours. It can be a few days or it can be several years. So so some people uh, can, through dissociative amnesia, forget whole decades of their life. The amnesia can last, uh, can, can the, the amnesia can also be delayed. So one could go through a traumatic event and the next day remember it and then a year later, complete memory deletion, um, or months later, something like that. Anyway, and of course, it must cause significant distress. Okay, so there are different kinds of amnesia. And I'm not going to go into full detail on this because it's actually extremely complicated. But before I do that, another extremely complicated thing I'm not going to go into full detail on is it's normal to forget things. Our brain is a, a, a glob of goo 
that is not a hard drive and does not record things exactly. And, and sometimes we just lose memories. And so all of us have, all, all of us don't remember most of our memories. Just think about that one. <laughs> all of us, m- most of the things that have happened to us, we don't remember. You know, there's so many things that happen to us on a day-to-day, minute-by-minute basis. It, our brain just isn't capable, for most of us anyway, to remember all those little details. So most of us forget things. The issue is that for most of us, if it's a significant event, we will remember it. If you were in a car accident, if you broke your arm, if you were abused, for most of us, we remember those events. We we don't not remember them. Also, if it's significant enough of a memory, the memory can be jogged if you see a picture, if someone tells you the story. So memory isn't... It's not like if you don't have dissociative amnesia, your memory is perfect. So how do you distinguish? Well, the distinguishing uh, factor is that for, for people with dissociative amnesia, there's no access to it. It's not just a repressed memory. It's not just a memory that is hard to access. It is uh, effectively gone. And there are different ways of looking at it. One is, is that the brain encoded the memory, but has decided to cut off uh, access to recall the memory. The other is that the memory has been deleted from the files, if you will. Our brains are not computers, but the analogy, I think, works. The other possibility is that in the moment, the memory wasn't ever encoded. So this if you have a delay in dissociative amnesia, that, then that means that the memory was encoded but was either later deleted or... Uh, denied access to. But some people have dissociative amnesia right away. In those situations, it might be because the memory was just never encoded. Because you have memory, you have you encode a memory, it gets stored, and then it's short-term, and then there's long-term memory, and then there's associations, and then there's recall. Anyway, it's it's very complicated stuff. But So there's normal forgetting, and then there's dissociative amnesia, which is, which is distinct because it's strange to not remember significant events, right? Uh, also, it's strange to forget entire blocks of time, which I'll get into in a second. So amne- the amnesia can be uh, what they call localized, and this is the most common form of dissociative, dissociative amnesia. And this is for a period of time. And, and again, these are all associated with traumas. So... Someone might not remember anything between the ages of five and 10. And they know enough to know that they were abused during that time, but they can't remember any of the details. They can't, they, they don't remember, they don't just don't remember anything from that time. I, I had a client once that had this who she didn't remember anything before the age of like 12. And her siblings did. And when she looked at pictures of herself when she was 10 years old, she just had no memory of anything. Now, again, most of us have spotty memories of pre-12, but most of us have some memory or some kind of valence. Like when I see a picture of myself wearing a a T-shirt that I liked when I was in the fourth grade, I remember that T-shirt. Now, if you asked me to recall like a specific event with that T-shirt, I'd be like, eh, I don't really. But I definitely remember that T-shirt. My mom would get me these sort of joke T-shirts in the 70s, like 
Um, soccer is a pain in the grass. <laughs> My mom is a silly person. And so uh, that's all it said. Just soccer is a pain in the grass. And, you know, it was just... And my my family didn't swear at all, so it's just kind of weird. But anyway, so I remember that shirt really well. It was also a yellow shirt with bright green letters across the front. So I remember that shirt, but I don't remember any event around that shirt. And uh, so so my memory's spotty, but I do remember it. Now imagine you see a picture of yourself wearing a shirt, and everyone in the family is like, "Oh my God, you wore that shirt all the time," and you don't remember anything about it. You don't remember that shirt. It's like you're looking at a foreign person, just like that's not even me. So that's what localized amnesia is just like it's localized to an event or a period of time. There's also selective, which is a specific aspect of an event. So, for example, someone might remember being abused, being physically abused or sexually abused, but they can't really remember the details. So it's selective in that the only select parts of the memory are uh, forgotten or cut off access to. There's generalized amnesia, which is uh, basically complete memory wipe, where it's just generalized to the whole memory system. And some people will suddenly just say, I don't know who I am, or I don't remember anything past a few weeks ago. I, for some reason, can speak English, but I don't, I don't know anything. I don't even know who I am. So you can have it be that severe where it's just complete memory loss. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, isn't this similar to traumatic brain injury or having a stroke? And the answer is yes. Uh, the difference is, is that this is psychologically caused and not due to some injury to the brain. Another type of amnesia is systematized, which is to uh, a category of information, like all memories of a particular person. Like if your mom was the abuser, you might forget everything that you might, you might remember everything except for her. So you might remember going to the zoo at the age of 10, but you don't remember your mom being there. Or you might remember uh, having a big birthday party with everyone there, but you have no memory of your mom being there. That kind of thing. And then there's continuous, which is the uh, experience of forgetting everything new that happens. Memento kind of goes into this, is uh, that you forget new things as they occur. So these are all related to trauma and psychological trauma, being terrorized. And due to that, the brain is trying to trying to help you, but the brain is an imprecise machine and it sometimes will forget things that you wish you didn't want to forget. You know, like if you were traumatized in life, you might actually want to forget. Think about eternal sunshine of the spotless mind, right? It's just like, let me forget about that past person because it was so painful. And, but instead of just forgetting that one person, you start, you start, uh, the brain is just like, well, let's just get rid of everything before you were 15 years old because if we try to select, and of course your brain isn't thinking this way, but the mechanism is operating this way. It's like, well, if I try to select just the memories that are traumatic for this person, I might not get them all, but we really need to get rid of all of them. So let's just let's just wipe the slate clean. The person will be better off anyway. Let's just get rid of everything prior to 15. 
So again, it's not a, there's not a little, you know, uh, worker bee in your brain making these choices, but I hope you get the analogy. Okay, so let's look at prevalence. At, at any given year, uh, almost 2% of people will be suffering from dissociative amnesia. And there's a lot more females, according to research, that suffer from dissociative amnesia. Hard to know why, but it is, it is what it is. So something like 2.5% of women have dissociative amnesia and 1% of men suffer from dissociative amnesia. And you can have this as a child, as a teenager, and as an adult. This is a, this is a little easier to detect in children c- compared comparatively to DID in that you will have a, a seven-year-old who doesn't even remember their grandparents, even though they spent a lot of time with their grandparents just like a year ago. And they're like, I have no idea who that person is. So it's, it's a little easier to detect in children. Now, can you develop this later in life? Yeah, it's possible. Uh, but as I was saying earlier, if you were traumatized as a child, it makes it so you have, have a very itchy trigger finger on dissociation. If you're terrorized and, and frequently needed to call upon your dissociative defense, then you're much more likely to engage in dissociative amnesia later on in life. So you might hear an adult talk about how they are kind of freaked out because they don't remember last month at all. And people are telling them things that happened last month, and they don't remember anything that happened. In all likelihood, in my experience, what I find is that the person was traumatized as a young person and has experienced various amnesias throughout their life. And something happened that triggered their fear response last month and their dissociative amnesia just said, let's just get rid of that because better safe than sorry, delete that file of February. Let's just get rid of it. And it's very distressing because you think you're going crazy. You think your brain is bad. Now, if you run across this sort of thing, it's a good idea to have the person go to a neurologist and make sure that they aren't having a stroke or aren't experiencing some organic problem with their brain because it would be impossible to distinguish between the two. Um, So that just adds to the complication. All right, let's go on to the next type is dissociative fugue. This is not DSM-5. It was in the DSM-4. Basically, dissociative fugue is temporary confusion and wandering off. So the old criteria are sudden, unexpected travel away from one's home or one's customary place of work with an inability to recall one's past, confusion about personal identity or the assumption of a new identity, and significant distress or impairment. So essentially with associative fugue, what they would find is that some people would just, they would just stand up and walk out of their door or walk away from their job, and they won't, they'll be very confused. They don't know where they are. They don't know who they are. And usually it's like a police officer will come upon them or something and say, like, what are you doing? And they just won't know what's happening. And then uh, time goes by and the dissociative few goes away and they say, what was I doing? Why am I over? Why am I in the police station right now? What happened? So 
it apparently is rare enough that they're not including it in DSM. I think they're also maybe just including it in dissociative amnesia now, dissociative fugue, because it's kind of like a subset of dissociative amnesia. Anyway. All right, let's go into another category. This is a pretty common one. Depersonalization, derealization disorder. So it's one of those weird uh, labels in the DSM where they just smashed two different diagnoses together because they don't have one word that will subsume you know, both of them. So it's, you have depersonalization slash derealization disorder. So what is depersonalization? Well, this is, in a nutshell, an out-of-body experience. So these are experiences of unreality, experiences of detachment from your own body. Sometimes people will say they feel like a robot, like their hands aren't really their hands. Or being an outside observer to even their own thoughts and feelings and sensations and their actions. They might feel like they're just going through the motions, like... They, they watch themselves get into the car. They watch themselves turn the car on. They watch themselves. Sometimes we'll, they'll depict this in movies, right? Like with being John Malkovich or something. So it's not that severe, obviously, but it very much feels that way. Now, you're not actually, the person actually isn't being possessed. And sometimes this is in, in other cultures outside of uh, Western culture, they will interpret this as being possessed, They'll say, I was possessed by a demon yesterday, that kind of thing. Because that's what it feels like. It feels like you're not really in control of what you're doing. Now, of course, they are in control of what they're doing. So it's just a very weird sensation, is is the way I'll say it, is that people with depersonalization, they're not claiming that they don't have control over their actions. It's just that they feel so separated from their own bodies that it feels very much like they're not really in their body and they're watching another person do things, if that makes any sense. And I'll go into some explanations or some emailed descriptions here. So we also have derealization. So de- so depersonalization is to depersonalize, to, you know, unperson yourself, meaning that your your personhood is now separated from you. Derealization is reality is now separated from you. So nothing seems real. So these are experiences of unreality or detachment from the world. So depersonalization is to become separated from your person, and derealization is to feel like the world isn't real. So people might experience the world as if it's kind of like a dream or it's in a fog or that the world doesn't have life in it or it's like being in the Truman Show and everything is fake or even visually distorted. So let's go into some emails of some descriptions here. Depersonalization is when you no longer feel one with your, you no longer feel one with your own body. My own touch can feel foreign This can go to where I scratch to the point of bleeding. As a child, I would sit on my feet and hands until they fell asleep so I could feel them. I had to convince myself I was real a lot, kind of similar to The Truman Show, but no one was watching us. Derealization is very similar just with the outside world rather than with myself. I used to explain to my sister that I would feel inside of a box no matter where I was. 
My vision blurs as though it's trying to focus. As a child, I would touch things in stores and all around me just to prove to myself that the world exists. So just uh, so that's the full email there. So we have some just classic depersonalization and derealization experiences. So uh, let's see. I had to convince myself that I was real a lot. So that's really hard to understand what that means. Unless you've gone through that, it's really hard to understand what that means. Now, a lot of people have gone through temporary bouts of depersonalization and derealization. I have, actually, which I'll get into in a second. But... But if you've never been through that, it's hard to imagine what that exactly would feel like, where you know intellectually that you're real, but you don't feel, you're very much convinced that you're not real and that you're, you're further away, you're, you're watching this body do things. You're looking at your hands, you're, you're touching your own hands, and it doesn't feel like it's you. Very distressing feeling. It's not pleasant. And then they go on to say, derealization. Uh, uh, see, I used to explain to my sister that I would feel like I was inside a box no matter where I was. So you feel separate from the world. They also say that their vision blurs. And they, as a child, would touch things all around them to prove that they are connected to the world because it felt like they weren't. Again, very distressing feeling, very anxiety-provoking feeling. Here's another email. Mine is specifically with derealization. I didn't experience this feeling until I was 36 years old. That's actually another chiming in here point about depersonalization, derealization is a, a different from the other uh, trauma, you know, the other dissociative disorders. Depersonalization, derealization can, for the, for many people, not exist at all, and then boom happen when you're an adult later on in life and last for a long period of time. So there's a difference between just experiencing a small bout of depersonalization or derealization that lasts for like a couple hours, and maybe it happens like three times in your life. So you wouldn't qualify for the diagnosis under those conditions. People who qualify for the diagnosis, they have it chronically, and it's, you know, it's really difficult for them. So I didn't experience this feeling until I was 36 years old. It came on for the first time after weaning off of Lexapro. I cannot say for certain I had derealization as a result of uh, weaning off of Lexapro. Whatever the cause, it was the strangest sensation I've ever experienced. It was a feeling I could never have imagined being possible. The closest I can describe it is like being a ghost. I've taken psychedelics, weed, and other drugs, but it wasn't like those experiences. I've taken a large non-recreational dose of mushrooms leading to a huge trip, and it was kind of like the scariest part of that trip. Derealization to me was more terrifying than any level of anxiety I've ever experienced. It is like separating from myself. I didn't feel desires or needs or bonds or interests or any feeling besides fear. But that fear feels like it's underwater. I could say to myself, do the dishes, and I'd do the dishes, but there was always a sense like the act wasn't very real. I have no idea how to describe that sense. It, it isn't like dreaming. It wasn't like the world wasn't real. It was like I wasn't real. 
like being an alien or a robot. The other two movies that have depicted things I felt touched on derealization are the episode White Bear of Black Mirror and aspects of the movie Get Out. The extra odd thing to me is that nothing seemed to predict or trigger it and nothing seemed to work to end it. I have sat on the couch reading leisurely and suddenly, boom, it'll just happen. Out of nowhere, there's no warm-up. It, it, isn't, it isn't startling. It doesn't grow. It's just like one minute you're present and alive and the next you're present and a ghost. It goes as randomly as it comes. I've been in, mid, I've been in mid-sentence and poof, it's gone. No one seems to be able to tell when I'm affected besides me. I had about eight episodes of derealization within two months. The first time it happened was shortly after fully weaning off of Lexapro. It resolved on its own a couple after a couple days. Then I tried the app Waking Up with Sam Harris. After a few weeks of daily meditation, I suddenly depersonalized during it. I stopped meditating immediately and experienced a little relief for a week. I depersonalize off and on for eight weeks total, sometimes for a day, sometimes for five hours. Sleep did not resolve it. I haven't had an episode in about two months. I've taken up DBT and it's helped me a lot, but I can't say if it's preventing the derealization or not. During derealization, I tried these things to get out. Aerobic exercise, being touched, reading out loud, cold water drinks, and causing myself physical pain. Nothing helped except reading out loud, which alleviated the feeling in the moment slightly. End of email. So it's a lot of suffering that you hear in that, right? And they actually talk about some of the common ways to ground yourself. Exercise, reading out loud, cold water drinks, which I'll get into later. And what this person is saying is like, yeah, kind of helped to read out loud, but not really. It just kind of was on its own trajectory. The other interesting part here is that, you know, as they were going off of Lexapro, as they were weaning themselves off of Lexapro, that's when it happened. They don't know if it was because of the Lexapro or not, but it just happened later in life. And just how awful it was to feel like a ghost in the world, right? I mean, geez, it just sounds so horrible. And to have it be for such a long period of time. And I have to say that I've had a similar feeling. It's hard to distinguish this from panic attacks because panic attacks can sometimes feel like derealization. Um, And like, anyway. So I just want to check in with people. That as I describe these stories, it might be triggering to you, even if you think of yourself as someone who doesn't have dissociation. So if you need a break, press pause, come back later, let your brain take a break. There's a lot of, you know, detail and a lot of weirdness. (laughs) Like, I feel like my brain is a little weird uh, just reading some of these descriptions. So when in doubt, take a break. I'll be here on your phone or wherever you're at when you want to come back. So maybe take a break. Okay, let's read another email here. Daily, I feel this sense of things not being real. It's an all-pervasive, it's all-pervasive, although it can vary in intensity. It's almost as if 
It's almost as if things seem unfamiliar or strange in a surreal dreamlike way. It can apply to my own body or even to my friends or family, like they aren't really them. I've had random panic attacks triggered just by looking at my feet or hands or talking to friends on the phone because their voice didn't seem like it was theirs. It can look, I can look at random things and just get this sense of the world not being real, constructed in some way, like even the sky being constructed. Before, I could read about philosophy like brain and a vat theory or whatnot and be like, well, okay, moving on. But now those thoughts seem really sticky. Then there's the existential thoughts that have also sent me into a panic attack like, how do I exist? How did I get here? How can I explain anything, really? It's less of a philosophical exploration, uh, but like a sense of dread and fear from those thoughts. I have to avoid any shows that question reality, like Westworld. I've read a lot about depersonalization, derealization, and I find that my experiences aren't unique. But I don't feel numb or detached from my emotions like other people talk about. What has helped me tremendously is knowing this is something other people go through. End of email. So I think that gives a, those uh, three or four emails give us a pretty good sense of depersonalization, derealization. I mean, a pretty good sense of what it is like to describe it. I don't think it gives any sense of what it's like to actually be in the having a derealization, depersonalization episode. Um, so, um, you have to go through it to really know what it's like. Okay. So let's get to some prevalence rates. Like I said earlier, uh, a lot of people have had at least one episode. Some studies show 50%, some say 75, but let's just say most people have had at least one episode of depersonalization or derealization. I remember having experiences as a child that were akin to this. It's hard to know exactly what was going on, but I remember this one moment where I was sitting on the floor in my bedroom listening to Stevie Wonder, and I heard the dryer, the clothes dryer, making this repetitive noise, this ka-clunk, ka-clunk, ka-clunk. And I was staring at my dresser, and I... I got lulled into like this weird state where it felt like a derealization episode. And I remember it lasting for quite some time. And I remember looking up at my light fixture on the ceiling and thinking like it felt so far away and yet it wasn't that far away. I knew intellectually that my light fixture was just on the ceiling, but it felt like it was, you know, a hundred feet away. Everything felt like a hundred feet away and time seemed to slow down very, very slow. In that moment, I remember later thinking, was that just like a few seconds or was that like an hour? I don't even know. So I think that was a derealization moment that was caused by, I don't know, maybe something I ate or the rhythmic sound of the clothes dryer. And I don't know if it's just because that moment was associated was associated with a rhythmic moment. But after that, whenever I would have another a calm moment where things are rhythmic, just like a clunk or maybe even 
uh, a visual rhythmic thing that I find myself kind of slipping into a derealization state. Now, the difference between me and people who suffer from derealization is that I can pretty much control the pulling out of it. You know, I can just be like, okay, I shake my head, kind of look around and say, okay, I'm, I'm in the world. That was weird for a couple seconds and it goes away. And even if I sort of went into it, I think that it would just last for a little bit of time. For people who suffer from the full-blown disorder, it it clicks on, as some people were talking about, and there's all, seemingly nothing that can pull them out of it. So although most people will have one or two episodes or a handful of episodes throughout their life, the lifetime rate for the disorder is 2%. So not that many people actually suffer from the full-blown disorder, meaning that it's chronic and more severe and causes a lot of distress. There's no difference by gender. It usually starts in teen years uh, or early adulthood. Only about 5% have an onset after 25 years of age. The episodes can last from hours to years. I'm a, I've known people who have suffered from depersonalization, derealization for years. And if, this, if the symptoms pop up in someone who is older, past 25, then it's a, a good indication that the person needs to be assessed for other kinds of things because it's pretty rare for it to suddenly pop up in someone that's over 25. Things like, a, like an actual stroke can be the cause or a medication or sleep apnea or lack of sleep. Uh, if you've ever been, if you've ever suffered from lack of sleep chronically, it can, you can feel like the world is like there's a veil between you and the world because of sleep deprivation. Okay. Let's go into our final two categories, other specified and unspecified. So other specified dissociative disorder is sort of a grab bag category in the DSM that includes all the things that haven't been discussed yet because there's a lot of different forms of dissociation. So examples of dissociation that would qualify as other specified would be things like being brainwashed. Like in the DSM, they call it an identity disturbance due to prolonged co coercive persuasion, like torture, or being in a cult. This can cause you to forget certain things. Like you, you might forget what your real name is or who you, what your identity is. You might adopt a different identity because the brainwashing, either through physical coercion or emotional coercion, uh, erased part of your identity, and it takes a while to get it back. So that's other specified dissociative. Another is a dissociative trance, where people become unresponsive to their surroundings. And uh, sometimes this is also interpreted as possession by a spirit or demon. So a, a trance-like state where you become kind of comatose in a certain way. Another is this, so within the grab bag category of other specified, they have another grab bag. <laughs> and this is acute and temporary dissociation, typically lasting less than a month. So it can include depersonalization, derealization that is very horrible, but it only lasts for like two weeks and then it never comes back. Or what they call a transient stupor. So this is kind of like the fugue or perceptual disturbances like time slowing for a day or time 
slowing for um, of, you know three weeks, or alterations in sensory motor functioning, even paralysis. Those things. So you know, there's a lot of things in here. But the one that I really want to point out is one that I've seen a lot cl- clinically. So it, clinically, for whatever reason, uh, at least half of the people that I've treated with a dissociative disorder qualify for what they call in the DSM as a constriction of consciousness or microamnesias and or microamnesias. So within the grab bag of the grab bag, there's this category that I would just call checking out where you are being threatened by something. There's something that's making you a little nervous, maybe family conflict or even just therapy or talking about something that is difficult to talk about trauma and it goes beyond PTSD and becomes a constriction of consciousness, meaning that you're not as conscious of what's happening in the world and what's going on. So what, what I'll see people do in session is that they will, um, once, once we, we, it might take us weeks, months, years to get to a point where they can actually fully describe this. Because like I said earlier, most people with association of this kind anyway, tend not to know that they have it. They tend to forget that they had moments like this or they're just sort of, or they think it's just sort of a normal thing to check out. But anyway, so what I'll see is they'll be be on my couch and they will start talking about, say, a trauma of their past or they're talking about a conflict with their current spouse and it's triggering some threat response in them. And they will, because we talk about it frequently, session by session, they'll say, oh, I think I'm dissociating right now. They'll tell me that. And I'll say, oh, okay, well, what does that feel like? And they'll say, well, I feel like things are shutting down and I feel like I'm pulling away mentally from everything. Me, you, the room. And I feel like I'm just sort of in a fog. I'm in a, I'm in a haze. So this doesn't fit... And then once, you know, they do grounding techniques for a while and the dissociative episode will attenuate or end. So this doesn't fit into DID, right? Because it's not a distinct uh, identity state or partial DID. It's not dissociative amnesia necessarily because it's not like a full forgetting of a particular moment. It's not dissociative fugue because it's not wandering off, not knowing who you are. It's not depersonalization or derealization, although it's very close to depersonalization and derealization. Depersonalization is where you feel like you're you're out of your body isn't yours, and derealization is feeling like the world isn't real. This constriction of consciousness, which is in the acute or temporary dissociation grab bag of the other specified dissociative sort of grab bag is this checking out. And I wish they had a full category in the DSM. I don't know if I'm just, uh, you know, I've strangely come across a lot of people like this, professionally and personally, by the way. But it just seems like it deserves its own category. Um, And, I mean, it must be for a good reason, because usually the DSM ICD will have categories that are, you know, logical. Not always, of course, but... Anyway, so sometimes these constrictions of consciousness, the checking out other specified dissociative, can involve microamnesias as well. 
And from Reddit, I have a description here. Um, an anonymous person wrote, I'm dissociating like crazy right now. I can't feel anything physically. I barely have any emotions except for the odd explosive breakdown. I was doing really well for the past year, but I find being alone is a trigger for my dissociation, and obviously being stuck in lockdown means I'm alone a lot. The thing that I hate the most is the movement of time. Sometimes I lose a few days, and other times it feels like I've been stuck in the same day for a week. For a week, end of comment. Right, so people will experience... Um, so, it, so that description, at least from what it sounds like, it doesn't sound like depersonalization, derealization. The person's saying, I'm dissociating like crazy. It gets triggered by the lockdown. I can't feel anything physically. I barely have any emotions except for the odd explosive breakdown. And so in that description, I don't hear anything like, I don't feel like my body isn't mine or, or I don't feel like it, the world isn't real. What I'm hearing is I don't feel anything. And uh, time will go by very fast. And I think that's part of the microamnesia. So things that I'll hear from people will be, and this isn't necessarily from clients. This might be from, from people I know. Something will trigger them, their PTSD or their trauma, whether it's they're at a bar and someone comes onto them sexually that reminds them of their abuser or their abuser calls them on the phone or they see a scene of assault in a movie and it triggers them. And they will have this constriction of consciousness and they won't feel very good. It's, so it's a numbing feeling, but it's also a very... Because the, it, the PTSD will kick in as well and all the distress. So it can be this combination. It's frequently what I've seen is this combination between PTSD, distress, spike... And feeling very dysregulated and very kind of worn out by the anxiety, very highly aroused by one's uh, anxiety, you know, heart beating, you know, just very fight or flight response. Simultaneously, uh, other specified dissociative, this acute temporary dissociation of constriction of consciousness and it, it usually, in my experience, will last for a, a number of days, say three or four days, maybe a couple of weeks. And during that time, the person will tend to avoid doing anything other than just simple things like watching TV or cleaning the house or something. They might be depressed during that time. And then suddenly over time, their body recovers their PTSD distress reduces and their dissociation reduces. And then they sort of come out of the fog. I've seen this a lot. And uh, it's a bit of a, a mystery as to why it doesn't have its own uh, category. Maybe because it tends to be uh, short bursts. Maybe that's why. I don't know. And then the final category here is unspecified dissociative disorder. And this is mainly used when a clinician doesn't have enough information to determine which label to provide. Like if you're an assessor working at the emergency room of a hospital and you, and you're, you suspect after three minutes of assessment because that's all you have time for, this person is suffering but from dissociation, but I don't really know which one, so I'm just going to say unspecified. Okay, so those are the different types. DID, partial DID, 
dissociative amnesia, dissociative fugue, depersonalization, derealization, other specified, which includes um, several, including its own, grand bag, its own grab bag. All right, let's go into differentials. So differential diagnoses include PTSD, meaning that sometimes people will look like they have dissociation when in fact they just have PTSD. And to me, they're pretty distinct, but if someone is in high distress, they might seem very distracted and cut off from the world, but they, they won't describe themselves as quintessentially dissociating. Dissociation is best assessed when someone describes to you. It's hard to really know, because if someone was having, say, that, that checking out type of dissociation, they might just look like they're really preoccupied, maybe even with their own traumas. So that can look like dissociation, but you really have to have someone describe it to you, and it's very distinct. People, when, whenever I've had a client describe dissociation to me, I've always been like, oh, that sounds quintessentially dissociative. So, uh, so PTSD can be sometimes mistaken uh, for a dissociative disorder, but I, like I said, just looking into it a little further, there's a pretty good distinction between being preoccupied with your distress and dissociating. Depression is another differential that you might want to look into because when people are depressed, they can become so depressed that they're semi-catatonic, if not full-on catatonic, and so that they can seem like they're dissociating when in fact they're just extremely depressed and their brain motivation functions have shut down to the point where they almost seem unresponsive. That's pretty severe, but it happens. Bipolar can sometimes look like it as well. Substance use is another frequent thing if you work in a hospital and you're assessing someone, uh, distinguishing the difference between a substance reaction like PCP and dis- a dissociative disorder would be hard, depending. Anyway, personality disorders sometimes can look like dissociation, but I don't know, it's not that hard to distinguish. OCD can sometimes look like uh, dissociation in the same way that PTSD can because you can be so preoccupied with what's happening and you can be so in distress that uh, you are kind of separating yourself from the world because it's overwhelming, but it's not like full-blown dissociation. And sometimes you just say, well, it sounds like OCD and dissociation. You know what? I'm going to put both down there, even though it doesn't sound like quintessential dissociation. It sounds kind of dissociative. Anyway, anxiety, uh, psychosis can look like dissociation because if someone is psychotic, they can, for example, believe that they're someone else. And it can look like DID when in fact it's a delusion that they believe they're someone else. Neurological disorders, stroke, brain injury, um, epilepsy, seizures can also create what can look like dissociative fugue, dissociative amnesia, these kinds of things. Factitious disorder is included in the DSM as a differential in that some people will fake it. You know, it's, it's popular enough that some people will fake it as for various reasons to get attention or to get out of prison. And also normal age-related memory issues can also look like 
um, dissociative amnesia. Someone is someone has sort of early onset normal memory problems at the age of 65 and they don't remember anything about a particular event that happened a couple years ago like going to someone's wedding and you're like oh sounds like dissociative amnesia or it's just earlier onset or if they're older they're 80 years old it's just the normal degradation of memory in people as they age which can be you know, extremely distressing to people. I don't want to downplay it at all, but it, um, we wouldn't categorize it as dissociation. So complications that are related to dissociation are many. One from, you know, at, because, so the condition causes its own problems. So you, often it's related to trauma, which causes a whole suite of problems, including dissociation. But sometimes just the fact that you're dissociation, dissociating, dissociating can cause its own problems. Like it can be very depressing to not be in control of your own mind. It can be very scary, as we heard in many people's descriptions, to not be in control of your own mind or to look at your hands and to feel like they're not real or to think about yourself as not real. It's, it's very distressing and can be very anxiety-provoking. It can destroy your self-esteem. It can make relationships very difficult. It can make work difficult. It can uh, create drug and alcohol abuse to cope. It can cause sleep problems, sexual issues, eating disorders, non-suicidal self-injury, suicide, and so on. So a lot of problems can emerge from the experience of having a dissociative disorder. Now, a lot of that has to do with people not knowing what's happening. And once they get a good diagnosis and good care, a lot of that, the complications start to attenuate because they think, oh, okay, well, this is something that other, as people were writing in, saying they're like, well, I know that I am not alone. Someone understands me. I can tell people what's going on around me. So it's really important that we spread the word about dissociation and help people get the help that they deserve. All right, so let's go into the causes. Well, I've already sort of uh, spoiled this section by talking about it, but just to go a little bit more systematically through the causes. As, as I said, it's almost always ca- caused by traumatic events um, and child... Well, so let me distinguish. So you have childhood trauma that's ongoing, and that usually will result in the ongoing disorder in adulthood, particularly DID and dissociative amnesia and the constriction of consciousness, other specified that I've seen. Those have, in my experience, always been associated with significant childhood trauma and trauma of the kind where you feel terrorized, where you feel quite afraid of things. Um, uh, even if your sexual abuser was being nice to you, there's, there tends to be a fair amount of fear involved in that. Okay. Now, later on in life, say you don't have childhood significant childhood trauma and you don't dissociate, you can have a one-time traumatic event in later in life and develop acute dissociation. This usually doesn't develop into a full-blown disorder, but you can have dissociation in those instances. Some people will report being sexually assaulted at the age of 30, having never dissociated before, 
and will dissociate during the event and also when they're reminded of the event, they'll dissociate. Uh, it tends to be of that constriction of consciousness type. Um, it could be depersonalization, derealization, but it usually isn't. Anyway, so we have an acute traumatic event. We also have just ongoing childhood trauma. We also have psychoact- psychoactive sub- sub- substances. That one person said that weaning themselves off of Lexapro seemed to be associated or it coincided, which can happen to some people. It's pretty rare from what I understand, and I'm not a medical person, so I'm just looking at the research. But, but psychoactive substances can cause a temporary state of dissociation and some prescription meds too. But common illicit uh, meds like ketamine, nitrous, PCP, K2, spice, etc., particularly uh, K2, spice, PCP, ketamine too. But you hear a lot of people who take K2 and spice will talk about feeling like the world isn't real or they're not real. Even on marijuana, sometimes, you know, it's a trope that you smoke weed and you stare at your hand and you're just like, whoa, my hand, dude. So you can have temporary dissociation from substances for sure, but it doesn't usually stick around after um, coming down. So uh, you can have uh, also acute dissociative episodes from severe acute anxiety. So um, that can cause it. So there are reports of people who suffer from ongoing anxiety and they'll have like a particular bad bout of it. And then boom, they depersonalize, derealize for like a few days. And it's pretty clear that it was from the severe anxiety state. So my understanding of this or my model of understanding this is that Like I said before, we all, as humans, have an evolved mechanism to protect us from very difficult situations. And depersonalization, derealization is one of them. It separates us from the world. It separates us from ourselves so that we can cope better with the trauma. And for uh, if it's just temporary, like, like you're, say you're in the middle of a car accident and your arm is like, really badly injured and it looks really gnarly. And so you sort of depersonalize as you go through that moment. Many, so along those lines, you know, uh, if you've ever been through a medical emergency, it's not uncommon to kind of dissociate during those moments to uh, go into another state of being until you get to a safe place. And then everything can kind of come back into sharper focus once you're safe so we can all imagine, or at least, I don't know, I can imagine that happening. So we all have that mechanism that's available to us when we're young and when we're old. The difference is when you go through it repetitively as a, as a child, as I was saying earlier, then it becomes very habitual and there's a very itchy trigger finger on that mechanism that isn't justified. So like I said, your boss looks at you funny and boom, you're dissociating, even though it's it's not as it's not clearly a, uh, as big of a threat as being beaten or sexually abused or something. So, so in the same way, as an adult, if you have severe anxiety, you have an anxiety episode where you're just really, really high strung for a significant amount of time, it can be akin to going through a car accident or through a medical emergency and your brain decides to say, okay, it's time to check out because you can't handle this. this is too much. We've... 
we've we've pegged the needle into the red and it's time to do something severe which is to pull out of reality which is this mechanism now the issue is here is that it, if it's temporary then it, it can work it'd be like okay i was sort of in a fog during that whole episode but uh, I th- you know the fogginess helped me get through but for some people it can just it can become such that the mechanism turns on and has a hard time turning back off again it can also be triggered by severe stage fright or a migraine can also so there's a lot of different experiences that are really horrible that can cause an acute dissociative episode typically what happens with this is it doesn't last very long and it doesn't usually come back so the the people who tend to ha- suffer from it chronically are those who had childhood traumas that were ongoing and the last little bit here in my notes i don't know if i said this earlier but there are two different schools of thought when it comes to dissociative identity disorder and forgive me if i already said this that for some people they believe and most people talk about this model of believing that we start off as an infant and as a young person with a an intact integrated self and trauma causes the need to bifurcate or to separate into different states identity states in order to cope so we start off integrated and then we're kind of uh you know separated out into 20 different alters to cope with the different stresses in life another model another theory to about this is that we actually start off as a young person with several different distinct identities and that the trauma prevents us from integrating in a developmental way. So this is kind of compelling because we all know kids who have very different states. You know, there's the kid who is very angry and the kid who's very nice and the kid who acts like they're very young, you know, they regress very uh, a lot. And so, but it's hard to know, you know, which one is quote unquote right. I suspect that we might not ever know. It's just a model of looking at things. Okay, so let's look at the signs. If you're looking at someone, what would someone with dissociation look like? The bottom line is they don't look like anything. They're, they look exactly like the normal variation of everyone else. There, there's no one profile of someone with dissociation. Most with dissociation will function well in society. And if you had a friend or a family member that dissociated, you wouldn't know. Some people with with dissociation function very poorly in society because of their dissociation, because the impact of their dissociation. Some people with dissociation are excelling in their professional field and some are not. Some will seem totally fine uh, when you're interacting with them and some will seem very distressed. There's no one gender to associate with dissociation. So, you know, everyone can suffer from dissociation. Some will know that they dissociate. They'll say, oh, yeah, I dissociate sometimes. Or, oh, yeah, I have DID. And many will not know that they have a dissociative uh, condition. Some people are totally fine with their dissociation, and many have massive distress about dissociation. 
So, so there's really no one profile. It's really everyone, and it's not a personality type. It's a, it's a, you know, coping mechanism that all of us have that becomes too habitual for some people due to early childhood trauma. Well, what what it can look like to others is in therapy anyway, and I guess when you're interacting with them as well, is they it might look like they become kind of glassy-eyed. They might kind of check out. Um, in some forms, they might be confused and apathetic. In some forms, they might not remember things very well. Uh, so it's just hard to tell. You just can't look at someone and be like, oh, that's dissociation. It's, it's something that you have to get a description from the person going through it because there's so many other things that, that could be going on. Like say someone is very glassy-eyed and apathetic and confused and not really very responsive in therapy. Well, they might just not want to be in therapy <laughs> or they might be high or something. There's just so many different possibilities. So it's one of those things that you really have to, and with most DSM labels, you really have to get the person to describe what's going on for them. You know, there's no way to know that someone is depersonalizing. You know, you can't look at someone and be like, oh, they're depersonalizing. Unless they said something like, I feel like a robot or I feel like my body isn't mine. So they'd have to describe what it feels like for them. So I just want to be clear that it's hard to see. And I'll tell you from personal clinical experience, the clients that I've had who we develop a robust understanding between the two of us about their dissociation. It's hard for me to know when they're dissociating. They will get kind of quiet and I'll say, are you dissociating right now? And they'll say, no, I'm just being quiet. <laughs> and then another session, I'll just be forging ahead and they'll be like, wait, wait, I started dissociating about 10 minutes ago, I think. And I'll be like, huh? Oh, okay. I mean, it'll make sense to me. It won't be like, it won't look completely foreign to me, but it's, it's not that easy to see. Now, if someone had dissociative identity disorder that I'm treating, it's much easier to tell when I... You know, getting to know certain alters, they'll behave in certain ways, maybe sometimes. But when it comes to the constriction of consciousness type, um, the temporary types of dissociation, it, it's it's hard to tell. Now, I know some people out there have colleagues who claim that they can see it very easily. And, yeah, I, I suppose, but I don't know. For me, it... It's not like I can just be like, boom, totally. I know, I know they're dissociating right now. Anyway. All right. So let's do a brief historical investigation into the concept of dissociation. Very, very brief because I, I could go on and on for hours and hours about the history. But in general, we have history. Uh, we, have, we have dissociation discussed among ancient Greeks in, in a medical way you know, describing in a whole, you know, they had a different language system and obviously a different understanding of the brain. But there are descriptions of what looks to be people who are dissociating. We also see throughout history descriptions of demonic possession or possession by a spirit or people claiming they were being possessed by a spirit, which might have been dissociating as well. You can imagine someone who was depersonalizing in the year 1000 in France, for example. And with their understanding, it would feel like, you know, because remember the feeling of depersonalization is that you're not really in control of your own body. 
and that your body is foreign or uh, with derealization, you feel like the world is foreign and maybe even your own family members aren't real and you would feel like, oh, my parents have been uh, supplanted by demons. And so it, it's possible that if we were to snatch those people out of history and give them a full assessment, we might actually diagnose them with dissociation. Probably not always, but maybe a lot of the times. Obviously, there are other potential interpretations of what was happening back then, like they were psychotic and this kind of thing. So we see evidence of dissociation kind of throughout descriptions, throughout history. But then we get Pierre Genet, who was, uh, you know, a, a predecessor and mentor, in a sense, to Freud, Sigmund Freud, French psychologist. He was the first to write about the concept of dissociation. It was a totally different language system back then. He, he's writing in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and he believed that dissociation was caused by a fragile mind that went through stress. And he, he didn't really think it was caused by trauma, but he did seem to think it was exacerbated by trauma. It's hard to tell exactly what he meant because, again, it's a totally different language system. And it, but, but he seemed, Genet, you know, did seem to say, you know what, I see dissociation that people who have difficult uh, experiences will kind of section them off and, and dissociate themselves from that as a way of coping. Um, but he seemed to kind of believe that people were just kind of born with it. And that, that was a frequent thing back then was, is it trauma related? Are you just born with these things? Then after Genet talked about it and introduced the, the concept, Freud talked a lot about it. William James, the American psychologist, Carl Jung, but it wasn't, talked about very often. It was talked about, but it wasn't a lot. It was just one of the many defense mechanisms that are available to humans. And it was also described in kind of a general way, like when you consciously dissociate yourself from something, like say you go into denial, you might dissociate anyway. Then we have the publication of the book Sybil in 1973, very popular book. And it was made into a TV miniseries in 1976 starring Sally Field, very, very popular TV miniseries. And it, in Sybil the book and Sybil the TV miniseries, it's depicting dissociative identity disorder. And there was a lot more talk about dissociation after this. Later, some accused all those involved with the book and the movie as uh, just creating the story out of uh, just uh, lying about it, just coming up with it, um, making it up to make money from books, TV shows, T-shirts, dolls, stickers, board games. So Sybil was such a phenomenon in the 70s that it was um, just a huge moneymaker to the point where they were making dolls of Sybil and board games <laughs> of Sybil, which just gives you an idea of just like, how ridiculous our society is when it comes to mental illness, you know? So there was this backlash in a lot of different ways. One was like Sybil is just a big lie, a big hoax that was pulled on everyone. But it also created this backlash against dissociative identity disorder or multiple personality disorder. It was described back then in general, where a lot of people not only just accused this book and movie of being a hoax, but they thought DID was a hoax in and of itself, that DID isn't real. 
And then there was all this backlash uh, in the clinical community, too, of people just like, oh, multiple personality disorder isn't really real. People are just faking it, that kind of thing. And so it really did a disservice to uh, the awareness movement. There's been a lot more talk about dissociation more recently, mainly as we became more acquainted with trauma and its effects starting in the 80s and 90s. There was more research, more awareness. And now we're in a point now where there are people who are doing really good work and doing a lot of good research and are very much aware of it. But we still have a lot of clinicians who aren't that aware of it and a lot of clinicians that still believe that DID is a hoax and is fake and certainly not a lot, not enough awareness in our society. So I would say that most therapists believe, quote unquote, believe in dissociation and they kind of understand it, but not well enough to really assess it and definitely not well enough to treat it. So maybe in another hundred years, we'll, we'll be better off in the future. And along those lines, I believe that in a hundred years, people like me will have to go through like 10 years of training because that's just how the trends seem to be headed. When at Antioch, where I teach and where I went to school, incidentally, in the 90s, the program in the past, like in the 70s, the clinical mental health counseling program was just nine months. And you went to school for nine months, and boom, now you're a therapist. And then by the time it was the 90s, when I went to school, it was about a year and a half, you know, maybe two years, but probably more like a year and a half. Now, it's, it's definitely two and a half years-ish minimum, and maybe more like f- three or four years in my program, more like three years. So you see this trend, right? And why do we have that trend? Well, it's because as time goes on, laws get passed and professional standards get changed such that it keeps raising the bar. Like, for example, right now, there's uh, X amount of credits that you need to be taught in psychopathology, which includes dissociation. But as I was saying earlier, the amount of credits one takes in psychopathology is so minuscule compared to the amount that needs to be taught to you in order to really understand all the things you need to understand. A lot of people graduate with a you know, fully accredited degree in mental health treatment and assessment with only barely a week of exposure to what dissociation is. Well, that will probably result at some point in the future, there'll be a movement and they'll say, you know what, we need to bump that up. We need to bump up the credit. We need to double the credits in psychopathology training and uh, diagnosis uh, training. And then, okay, well, that's, that adds more credits, which adds more time, which means that in 50 years, uh, if, if current trends continue, so in, in 50 years, we've gone from, from one year to three or four years. So in another 50 years, it'll, maybe it'll be eight years to get your master's or something. Or everyone will have to get a long-term doctorate or something. Anyway. All right. Let's talk about media over the years with dissociation. So the most common that I found of all the different disorders 
that is very distinct is associative identity disorder. That This is depicted a lot in movies and TV. So we could even go back to Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and even say that that was kind of a dissociation, a, a DID depiction, although I don't think it was explicitly so, right? There wasn't like a chemical he drank or something. But it is, you know, kind of... The, the idea of having two distinct personalities is something that was has been popular for a long time. Then we fast forward to 1957, The Three Faces of Eve with Joanne Woodward. She won an Oscar for this depiction. And from what I understand, The Three Faces of Eve is a fairly accurate depiction of dissociative identity and also doesn't stigmatize it. So, so there's, there's a number of different things I'm looking for in a movie is one, how accurate is it? And two, does it stigmatize it? Then we go to Psycho in 1960. Spoiler alert, the main character has two distinct personalities. He has himself and he has his dead mother. Is it really dissociative identity disorder? Hard to say. Definitely stigmatizes it because he's a murderer. We have David and Lisa in 1962, which I've never seen. And then we have Hulk, the comic book which you could think of as a form of DID, maybe. Then we have Sybil the Book in 1973, Sybil the TV show in 1976, Sally Field. It's supposed to be pretty accurate. I haven't seen it in a long time, and it, from what I've read, it doesn't stigmatize it as well. So, so early on, we have these pretty good depictions, Three Faces of Eve and Sybil. Um, and then we have another one, 1990, skipping forward to 1990, Shelley Long from Cheers and a TV miniseries called Voices Within the Lives of Trudy Chase. So this is apparently based on a true story. And they consulted with people who actually have DID to make sure that they were getting it right, apparently. And it's actually on YouTube right now, I think illegally. (laughs) But I I just watched it. It's pretty long, but I, I just watched it on YouTube. And from what I've seen, well, from what I've seen, it's pretty accurate for DID. It depicts the abuse that she went through as a child. It depicts DID pretty accurately. It doesn't seem to really stigmatize DID from, you know, I, I didn't watch the whole, I sort of skipped around. And also, the Shelley Long, she plays a person with DID who seems to have a lot of agency and functions well in society. So it shows that, you know, you can you can do well in society even if you have DID. Then we fast forward six years to Fight Club, where we have Edward Norton, Brad Pitt. Completely not accurate depiction of dissociative identity disorder, aside from the memory loss. So in Fight Club, again, spoiler alert, the main character has dissociative identity disorder. He has another distinct identity that will kick in, and when the Brad Pitt character, the Tyler Durden character, kicks in, the Edward Norton character doesn't remember anything, or he can kind of, he has vague memories of maybe doing something during that time. But he, for the most part, has no memory of what Tyler Durden has done. But Tyler Durden, I think, has memory of what the Edward Norton character is doing. And in the movie, we see Edward Norton hallucinating his own altar. So, Edward Norton interacts with Tyler Durden uh, in the, you know, he hallucinates him living and breathing and walking around the world, which is not accurate to DID. And this is a frequent thing that started to kind of crop up in movies and TV is this hallucination 
of the other person. Also in Fight Club, he shoots himself with a gun, Edward Norton, to rid himself of the Tyler Durden altar. So that's not accurate. Now, I love Fight Club, but it's not an accurate depiction. And it kind of stigmatizes it, right? Because it associates DID with crime and difficulty on a level that is not normal. Then we have Primal Fear in the same year, 1996, Richard Gere, Laura Linney. Uh, From what I understand, it's not accurate. I don't really remember that movie. We have Me, Myself, and Irene uh, in the year 2000 with Jim Carrey. Uh, Not accurate. Um, After suppressing his rage, he has a psychotic break and then alters emerge. So he develops DID later in life. Um, You know, it's a comedy. The Tale of Two Sisters, 2003. It's a Korean movie that I haven't seen. Then we have Lord of the Rings, 2002, Gollum, kind of accurate. Uh, You know, he has, Gollum has, or Smeagol has two different altars, you know, two different distinct states. It's created by trauma from the ring traumatizing him and also the trauma that the ring made him kill his brother, Smeagol and Deagle. So, you know, they don't go into full detail on it, but it's, it's kind of accurate. It's not very frequent that people will talk to themselves and then, you know, they'll speak to the altars out loud and switch that quickly, but it's kind of possible, or at least it's emulative of what the inner conversation could maybe look like. But, you know, it kind of stigmatizes as well because Gollum is, you know, it, a very, uh, so as these movies start to, you know, progress is we start to see people using DID as an excuse to create an evil altar, to have a, you know, a personality state that is evil. So in Gollum, <clears throat> in Smeagol, we had the evil Gollum and we had the good Gollum. We had, we had Smeagol and we had Gollum or something. I can't remember if they had actually distinct, distinct names, but so this stigmatizes DID, right? It suggests that people with DID have this evil side to themselves, which is just not true. Can someone with DID do something evil? Absolutely. But they're just as capable of, as anyone else is of doing something evil. Um, Identity, 2003, John Cusack, similar to Fight Club in that it's inaccurate and stigmatizes DID. Although I do remember liking the movie and the twist at the end. Uh, They remade Sybil in 2007. I haven't seen it, but apparently it's okay. United States of Terra, uh, 2009 TV show, Tony Collette. Apparently it's pretty good. I I only remember seeing clips of it. But apparently it's supposed to be accurate, non-stigmatizing. Then we got Frankie and Alice, 2010, with Halle Berry. So as you can see, you know, a lot of the big names, Tony Collette, Halle Berry, John Cusack, Jim Carrey, uh, Edward Norton, Brad Pitt, Shelley Long, Sally Field, you know, some of the best actors in our uh, culture have portrayed someone with DID. And at the same time, complete lack of awareness in our society of it. (laughs) Um, Apparently, Frankie and Alice, whenever I say apparently, I think of the apparently kid. Apparently, my dad watches the Powerball and I don't watch the news. Anyway, Frankie and Alice, uh, 2010. Apparently, it's pretty accurate and it doesn't stigmatize DID. Waking Madison, 2010. Imogen Poots and... Elizabeth Shue, 
Apparently, it's not very accurate. Mr. Robot, 2015. A lot of you have been asking me to talk about this. Um, I, I watched the first season and a half. The second season wasn't, in my view, a, as compelling as the first season. The first season was very compelling. Rami Malek, uh, similar to Fight Club in that he interacts with his altar. You know, he hallucinates one of his altars. So it's not accurate. And then we have Split. 2016. We actually did a whole episode on Split. You can listen to that back in 2016. M. Night Shyamalan. It, uh, on one hand, it has a lot of accuracies because it really focuses on the DID, the movie Split. It's really, um, you know, revolves around the main character and his DID. And in some ways, I, I, I thought it was great the way it depicts how it can be and the plurality and what it can feel like and the therapy. But it also, again, massively stigmatizes DID by making one of the altars a superhuman, uh, basically an evil villain superhero that likes to abduct children, uh, young girls, and eat them and kill them and just horrible things. So it's an interesting movie in that respect. Now, is, a, is it exaggerated? Yeah. I mean, the way in which the actor uh, plays the different uh, characters uh, is both accurate and a little overstated, if that makes any sense, any sense anyway. Now, there are many other movies that depict DID, but those are the ones that I just wanted to highlight. All right, let's look at uh, Amnesia, uh, Dissociative Amnesia. So we have Memento, Year 2000, Guy Pierce, who only can remember the past like 10 minutes. It's probably a very rare presentation of dissociative amnesia, but it, you know, it's kind of accurate and it's trauma created, right? Nurse Betty, year 2000, Renee Zellweger. I don't remember this movie, but apparently it portrays traumatic amnesia. Vanilla Sky, 2001, Tom Cruise. Again, probably a rare presentation, but trauma caused and I guess accurate in a sense. The Born Identity, Matt Damon, 2002. Again, probably a rare presentation, but accurate, right? He has some kind of trauma, and he has psychogenic amnesia, if I remember right. Shutter Island, 2010, Leonardo DiCaprio. Uh, again, probably a rare presentation, but seemingly accurate. But I think in the movie, he went into denial. But you could say that was a version of dissociative amnesia, because he seemed legitimately... Um, to have forgotten a whole part of his life and identity. Lots of video games have this theme. It's kind of a trope in video games. You, you wake up in uh, a bedroom in, or a jail cell, and you don't know who you are. And it's just a convenient way to get you started in a video game because they don't want to have to write a backstory. And it's also a trope to reveal your backstory, similar to Born Identity, as you go through the game. All right, let's look at depersonalization. Not depicted that often in movies, even though it's a pretty common issue for people. Uh, One to highlight, though, is Get Out, as someone wrote um, in that it's sort of related to their experience of depersonalization. 2017, Daniel uh, Kaluuya. It's not very accurate because, one, it, it depicts it as being caused by hypnosis, which is ridiculous. And then... The, I mean, I guess you could say metaphorically it could feel that way, right? You, you see Daniel will 
becomes separated from his consciousness and he falls into this black abyss and he can still kind of see um, the world very far away. So it's kind of depersonalization, sort of derealization, but it, it was, it was different than that. Anyway, um, other specified dissociative disorder. We have the Manchurian candidate uh, originally came out in 1962, pretty accurate. So in this movie, we have a soldier who has been brainwashed through coercion and now has a different identity and um, has a mandate to kill a politician. Uh, I mean, it's pretty hard to do that to someone, and I, I haven't read the research in a while on how accurate that depiction is, but we would put that under other specified dissociative disorder. Another is Total Recall, 1990. Um, where this Arnold Schwarzenegger enters into this virtual reality, and he, over time, the uh, one of the storylines or possible storylines is someone enters into the game. Well, so he goes into the game, and then he emerges from the game, but he doesn't realize he's emerged from the game. And then someone goes into the game and says, you're still in the game, you're, but we can't, extract you from the game until you allow yourself to be extracted from the game. So in this way, it's kind of other specified dissociative disorder. And maybe, maybe we'll see that happen in the future when we have the matrix. Okay. So common mistakes that people will make in movies and TV are number one, like I said, is that people will hallucinate their alters, which is just not going to happen. Uh, number two is that they will make people with DID or any dissociative disorder out to be a dangerous person, which is just empirically not true. Number three is that they will make people with DID completely unaware of their alters. So movies like Identity, movies like this, they will uh, the protagonist alter will just have no concept that they have alters, which is usually not the case. It can be in very rare um, circumstances, but not usually. Usually people with DID do know that they have other alters. Not always, but... Um, number four is changing alters is very noticeable. Like I said with Split, the change of the characters was very, very noticeable. And that can be true, but it's, it's not as true at, usually as the w way movies make it look. Number five, DID can develop later in life. They'll sometimes show that, which is, you know, not, not possible, uh, or at least not understood to be possible. Number six is that they usually have a goal of integration. Like in Fight Club, for example, the goal is to get rid of your alters, and that's just not usually the goal. And the last one, number seven, is that DID can be cured suddenly, like in Fight Club when he shoots himself in the face, and that causes the Tyler Durden character to disappear. Uh, this is not usually possible. You can't cure DID uh, suddenly. All right, let's talk about the treatment of dissociation. So the bottom line or the caveat to this section is that there's not much evidence that one particular approach works over others, but it hasn't really been studied enough. And it's difficult to study since treatment can take years and there are almost always complications with other disorders like complex PTSD, personality disorders, etc. So it's hard to know 
what to say when it comes to this. I mean, the the state of affairs is like, well, we don't know how to treat trauma. But I can tell you that me and many other people who treat trauma have found success with certain things, which I'll get into in a second. So first, let's get medication out of the way. Uh, antidepressants are sometimes prescribed, anti-anxiety meds, sometimes just like a benzodiazepine to help someone get through a particular moment. But to be clear, there are no, there is no medication or a biological treatment for dissociation. But it can mitigate the triggers for dissociation if your dissociation is triggered by fear, anxiety, depression. And it can also take away some of the anxiety you feel while you're dissociating. But it's not going to eliminate the dissociation. Common therapies that people will often put forth as the standard is similar for trauma, which is EMDR, DBT, CBT exposure, this kind of thing. But that doesn't really get to the core of the matter. So I'm just going to provide my treatment model, which is based on research, consultation, experience, this kind of thing. Now, it's hard to describe my model, and if I was to fully describe it, which I have to my supervisees, it would take a long time, but I'm just going to kind of go over the, the skeleton of it. Also, you have to be able to uh, respond in a tailored fashion to every client. I've never seen two dissociation uh, people, dissociating people, the same. It's similar to, to, on, to uh, you know, more severe forms of PTSD. You have to tailor the treatment to the client because, you know, if someone has a broken arm and they come into the hospital and you, you diagnose and you treat it, well, they it's fairly, fairly distinct, similar to like panic disorder or something. If that's all that we're seeing, then it's pretty easy to treat or it's pretty easy to know what to do to treat it. When it comes to uh, ongoing dissociation, Remember that these people have been massively traumatized when they were growing up. So the chance that they have other disorders is pretty high. And the chance that as you treat their disorder, they're going to dissociate in the middle of session is also pretty high. And so, uh, you know, it'd be like if you're trying to treat someone with a broken arm, but they also have this condition that causes them to involuntarily like flail their arms and they have another condition where they hate doctors. You know, it, there's a lot of complications that can come with it that you have to, as a clinician, assess and tailor the treatment to them. And these other conditions like borderline or PTSD, complex PTSD that might be present also have to be treated at the same time. You can't, it's hard to just treat dissociation without also treating these other things. So it can really be complicated, and you have to be very good at what you're doing, and you have to know a lot of stuff about trauma and all its various effects and all its various treatments. And you have to be very good with your countertransference and your own regulation, differentiation, and session, because it can be pretty scary to work with people who have dissociation. Not always, but it can be. So the other key is you have to pace the therapy very, very carefully. If anything, you want to go too slow. This is very similar to trauma therapy. So you want to experiment with how fast you can go. And like I said, you want to default to a slower pace of therapy because if you go too fast, you can re-traumatize the client. You can trigger dissociation and session. And then once that happens, it's hard to get anything done. You can also tr trigger long-term dissociation that could last for a couple of months if you go too fast in session. 
You can trigger massive levels of distress and PTSD reactivity, anxiety, or depression. And so you can't just forge ahead with a model. You have to be very so but the the issue here is in order to know in order to know how fast you're going if you know in order to know if you're going too fast the client has to be able to tell you that they're in distress and or dissociating in order for a client to be able to tell you that they're in distress and or dissociating they have to be aware of the fact that they're going through distress and or dissociating which can take a long time so a lot of it in the beginning has to do with the following so number one is stabilization. Some people require this, some people don't. But some people might not be in a safe situation. They might be struggling with a lot of drug abuse. They might have conflict with their support system. They might be suicidal. And these things are more important to take care of up front than to just dive into association treatment. Number two is, so after you've stabilized a person, you can go into a number of other things at the same time. These aren't in order. They're just different things you can do. It is dissociation awareness. So helping the person understand what dissociation is, helping them to name their sensations, um, awareness of what it feels like throughout the course, because there are different phases. Someone wrote in and said, it feels like there are there's a wave of tingly numbness that comes over my legs and sort of washes over my body. So for some people, it'll feel like that. For others, it won't. And so there's that. And also normalization. So you want to help to normalize it because that can do a lot to reduce distress for them. Also, what you want to go into is trigger awareness and trigger management. So you're trying to help them to figure out what does trigger their dissociation and how they can reduce their exposure to those triggers. Like I had a client who was triggered by men talking to her. If if a man came up to her and was hitting on her, that would trigger her. And so uh, in the beginning of treatment, she would be triggered a lot by that. But over time, we were like, okay, well, it looks like that's a trigger for you. Do you have anything coming up in this next week that is at risk of running into men that will hit on you in public? And so this is another part of it is you might have schemas involved that uh, have uh, a certain outlook on life or perspective of fairness in life where they don't believe that that they deserve to take care of themselves, right? Like I say at the end of every episode, you deserve to take care of yourself. And so uh, sometimes you have to challenge those schemas. Anyway, but trigger awareness and management is very, very important, very critical to dissociative uh, treatment. And then just general emotional awareness and management. You might have to develop a sense of self. That might take a long time. That could take years. Because to know your emotions, you have to be in connection with yourself. And then you can actually move on to managing. And this can involve cognitive therapy, telling yourself you're safe, that you're not in danger, this kind of thing. So emotional regulation, very, very important. And not to be just glanced over. It needs to be very robust. People with trauma have to be extremely aware of their emotions and of their, um, of, and of how to manage their emotions. Okay. So after a bit of that, um, and maybe at the same time, these aren't really in phases, we get to kind of the core distinctive quality of dissociative treatment, which is called grounding. Grounding involves a number of different techniques, behavioral and cognitive, that help to 
bring the person back from dissociating. Because remember, dissociating, in a nutshell, is pulling away from reality as a way of protecting yourself. And because there's a habitual nature to it, the individual will pull away from reality in times when it's not helpful to them. Little threats, tiny little indications of threats will cause them to dissociate instead of dissociating when it's probably most useful under extreme stress and trauma. So grounding helps to bring to, you know, keep people on the ground, keep people in their body. So there's a wide variety of techniques that work for people. Someone talked earlier in an email, they're like, yeah, I tried, you know, drinking uh, cold water. I tried this at none of the, so a lot of those things were kind of referring to. So I don't want to give the impression that any of these things work very well, but these are the things to try with people. So the first category of grounding techniques are the here and now. You'll hear a lot of literature about here and now grounding techniques. So this is body awareness, you know, mindfulness about body awareness or putting your literally just putting your feet on the ground and saying, my feet are on the ground. I am here in this chair um, and really focusing on that. Tactile grounding, like uh, playing with something like rubbing your hands together or playing with a ball in your hands, uh, maybe drawing something. Movement, maybe getting your body, you know, because as you start to pull away from reality and you start moving your body, it, it, it focuses your mind. It's hard. There's various different speculations as to why this works. One is, is that it focuses your mind on your body and, and the fact that you're in your body. And there's something about focusing on the fact that you are your body keeps you from dissociating. Another possibility is that when you do these kinds of things, you're reminded that you're not really in danger because part of the dissociative cause is that the brain feels like it's in danger. But when you do movement and or you're, you know, putting your feet on the ground or you're doing your breathing exercises, you're giving other signals to your body that you're not actually in danger. It feels like you're in danger, but there's all these other reasons to say that you're not in danger because why would you be sitting calmly, breathing calmly, thinking about your hands if you are really in danger? You know what I mean? So you could hug someone. You could do breathing techniques. There's also positive and neutral distractions like having a strong mint or singing or making art or naming things in the room. You'll see people do that. So that's another way of grounding. It's just like, okay, that's a shelf. Okay, that's a door. That's a curtain. That's a light. That's a camera. That's a computer. That's a mouse. That's Those are headphones. That's an iPhone. You know, I'm just pointing at things in my room. That's actually not an iPhone. It's a pixel. <laughs> um, so there's something for some people that works. It's like if you, if you, if you say, I'm in this room, I'm here and now. Um, another thing that people will say is they'll say, my name is Kirk. I'm 49 years old. I live in Seattle. My wife is Stacy. Like if, if you say it's, you're reassuring yourself that you're, you're, you are who you are. There's something about that, that, that helps. Also, some people will pick a letter and think of things that start with that letter, you know, like letter D. Okay. We got dog and we have Dawn and we have door and we have dragon. (laughs) Why is it hard for me to come up with D words? So sometimes that helps. Also reassuring yourself that you're safe. You know, mantras to yourself. It's like, okay, I'm in a room, I'm on a chair, 
No, no threats are around me. I know it feels like I'm being threatened, but I'm not actually being threatened. Going to your happy place might work. Another thing that people will do is they'll have a grounding box. I think I might have talked about this in the podcast before. Someone else talked about it. It's a, a literal box that you have, and you personalize the box with things that you can do to ground yourself. It might even just be a list that's in the box, but it could be objects that you use to ground yourself. The reason for this is the box itself is just kind of soothing. It's just like you have that thing you can go to. It's like an emergency first aid kit that you can go to. Another part, another aspect of it is that when you're beginning to dissociate, sometimes you don't, you're not thinking well, you're very, you might be confused. And so having a, a physical box that you go to is an easier thing to do than, than to say, okay, what am I supposed to be doing right now? Okay. So we got pacing, we got stabilization, dissociation awareness, emotional awareness, trigger awareness, normalization, grounding. And we also have systems therapy. So like I was saying earlier, you got to get everyone involved. You got to get spouse, family, friends, work, because this is something that is going to be impacting everyone in all likelihood. So you got to educate everyone. You got to tell them how to how they can help with managing the triggers, how they can be a support person, how they can create safety, how they can help to manage um, these kinds of things. Um, so that's important. Also, you need to develop a plan for triggers, for emotional regulation moments, and for grounding. So there has to, usually with dissociative people, you want to say, okay, if you start to dissociate, what do you do? If, if you run into this trigger and you can't get out of it, what's the plan? So getting control. Because dissociation is in response to powerlessness over being victimized. And so the more agency you can make someone feel, the less likely they are to dissociate. And a lot of people, as they've been repetitively traumatized growing up, they don't have the notion that they deserve to have safety. And so they, they don't think that they could develop a safety plan for themselves. And when you start to develop that for them and collaboratively, they're like, oh, I guess I, guess I deserve to um, protect myself. Like that's not a notion that was told to me when I was growing up. And for many people with dissociation, not everyone, trauma therapy would be another thing to go into because the original trauma uh, needs might need to be habituated to in order to reduce the likelihood of dissociation and other traumatic reactions. Okay, let's go into some of your emails. And these emails were sent over the past few months, so some of these might be old, but first email here. I was wondering if you have any insight on trauma therapists pushing patients too far. Oh, so this this email is not uh, associated with dissociation, but more just trauma treatment in general. So getting to the email, I was wondering if you have any insight on trauma therapists pushing patients too far too fast. I had a pretty negative experience with one of my first therapists. I was seeing her to work through childhood sexual abuse. This therapist claimed to specialize in trauma. She was the first person I had even spoke about it with, and when the words came out of my mouth, I became uncontrollably hysterical. After I calmed down, her immediate response was to ask if I had reported the offense to CPS. When I told her I hadn't, she almost scolded me, saying that the likelihood of him perpetrating abuse after myself was high. 
She told me that there was no way I was going to be able to heal without reporting the abuse and told me that I was robbing my parents of the opportunity to comfort me. Uh, chiming in here. So therapists, we are under a mandated reporting law to uh, report childhood abuse to the authorities. Um, so I'll get into more of that later, but that's probably what was at play here. Also, this notion of robbing my parents the opportunity to come for me. I think what that uh, means is that the therapist was saying, you not only have to report it to the authorities, but you have to, you also need to tell your family so that they can comfort you. Going on with the email. I understand what she was saying. However, it was so overwhelming. I feel as though I dissociated for the rest of the session. I went to her for two subsequent sessions, and she continued to pressure me into reporting the offense to the authorities. I told her I didn't even know where this person was now, as well as our families are separated, and she encouraged me to try to find him. Needless to say, I didn't return her, and I didn't return to her, and I spent the next six months or so experiencing acute trauma symptoms and ended up developing some sexual compulsive behavior. I found another therapist and have made good progress with him. I am still unsure as to why her approach to trauma was so forceful. Is this a rare occasion or an unfortunate common occurrence? Why would she do this? Was it to protect herself? End of email. So I'm really sorry to hear this, uh, anonymous patron, that you went through this. It is awful. It is terrible. It is irresponsible. It is immoral, it is unprofessional, it is incompetent, and I'm so sorry that this happened. So let's kind of comb through your email. The first thing is, is you started out by saying that this therapist claimed to specialize in trauma. So anecdotally, I don't know the research, I don't know if there is research, but anecdotally, when I see people claim on their website, or even in verbally, that they specialize in trauma, this can mean a lot of different things. So I actually don't, I don't think I say I specialize in trauma, even though I treat a lot of people with trauma. It's just one of those phrases that a lot of therapists will claim to be good at. Because to say that you're not good with trauma is sort of saying you don't know what you're doing as a therapist because so much of what we do is dealing with trauma. Also, a lot of bad education, a lot of bad supervision can lead one to believe that they are good enough with trauma or they, they can say that they specialize in trauma. There's also no penalty uh, under 99.9% .9 of circumstances to say or claim that you specialize in trauma even though it's a pretty dubious claim. It's like saying you specialize in relationships. It's, there's no certification process for that. And so anecdotally, when someone says they specialize in trauma, that can mean that they are extremely competent with trauma, or it can mean they really have no idea what they're talking about. It's just one of those really crappy things that we have to live with in our society. When you go to a physician and like a general practitioner and you have, say, um, I don't know, like a, a spinal issue, then you go to a spine specialist and the general practitioner knows that they, they don't know as much as the spine specialist does. And so there's a referral made. In the mental health, uh, especially in private practice, there's this uh, very amorphous um, notions, or not a lot of people know, one, about 
what they don't know about as therapists. And two, they might not know who to refer to. We live in a very, very strange world in mental health. You have a broken foot, there's a foot doctor. Foot doctor. You have a problem with your nose, there's a nose doctor. You have a problem with your skin, there's a skin doctor. In mental health, we do have those things, but a lot of people don't know about them or they don't know that they should know about them. And if they know they should know about them, they don't know where to go. It's just that, and there have been various different uh, solutions proposed. I actually, a number of years ago, had someone on the podcast who was starting a website that was trying to deal with this. I, I don't know if it ever panned out, but anyway, so the therapist claimed they specialized in trauma and that could mean a lot of different things. The next part of this is that you disclose that you, so, th- well, the next, the very next part of this is you say that you started to talk about the sexual abuse and it was the first time you'd ever spoken about it, and you became what you claim to be hysterical, what you describe as hysterical. I'm guessing you were very distraught. And this is evidence, potentially, that the person really had no idea how to treat trauma. One of the hallmarks of a trauma specialist is pushing back on clients who are actually beginning to tell their story about trauma. And this is what I used... This So... The first 10 years of my career, I probably said I specialized in trauma, but I was mostly incompetent when it came to trauma. It wasn't until later when I uh, learned things. And one of the critical things that I have learned and one of the things I beat into my supervisees' heads, and I think they halfway sort of accept it, is this notion that when a client sits down on your couch or chair and they start talking about specific traumas that they went to, particularly childhood sexual abuse, As a therapist, you have to stop them right away, unless you absolutely know for sure that this isn't going to re-traumatize them. It's just one of those notions that's out there in society that when you go through trauma, you're supposed to talk about it. And generally speaking, that's true. But the other notion that is widely unknown, even to clinicians, unfortunately, is to just headlong you know, go into describing it out loud, even if you've thought about it, to describe it out loud can be much more exposing yourself to the original traumas. And unless you have a lot of measures in place, not only will it not be helpful, but it will actually re-traumatize the person. Uh, This person emailing in said that they spent six months or so experiencing acute trauma symptoms and ended up developing some sexual compulsive behavior. That is not uncommon. And I know some of you out there have even emailed me about this. You went to a therapist or you're, in a, you're, you're seeing a therapist right now <clears throat> who just asks you, okay, talk about your trauma and has no knowledge of how to actually treat dissociation and PTSD. So, so there's that. The therapist clearly did, didn't, or at least you didn't mention anything that the therapist did to try to pace the situation. I've worked with people who come to me and they say, I want to work on my trauma. We do a little bit of assessment, and I continue the assessment over time, and we discover that it'll probably take seven years of weekly therapy before, or we found, you know, over this span of time, that it took many years for us to get pre, uh, you know, the prerequisites done before they could ever even talk about their trauma. That's how serious this is. This isn't just like one or two sessions of prep work to talk about trauma. For some people, particularly if they were abused throughout their childhoods, we're talking months, years of prep time of 
getting to know the self, developing a sense of self, stabilization, emotional awareness, emotional regulation, non-shaming of the self when it comes to emotions and stress. A lot of work before you can even begin to think about talking about the trauma. So I uh, hope I've drilled that into your heads if you're a clinician out there. And really, if you're a client, you know, if you find that a therapist just says, tell me about your traumas, and they don't have any kind of indication that pacing is an issue, then, oh, no, that's a problem. Or at the very least, just pace yourself. Then you go on to say that the therapist scolded you for not having reported it um, and saying, uh, and so this is a, a common issue that I've seen. So depending on where you're at, if you're in the United States, in all likelihood, your jurisdiction, therapists are mandated reporters along with uh, physicians and teachers. In that, when we hear about abuse at work of children, we are mandated to report that. And the law is pretty general, meaning that it doesn't stipulate a time span, meaning that if a 35-year-old comes to me and says, I was sexually abused by my father when I was seven years old, and the father is still alive, technically speaking, we have to call CPS. Because there's nothing in the law that says, well, if it was 30 years ago, you know, we'll let it go. There's, there's nothing like that. It says if you hear about a, a child who was abused in the past, even if it was 40 years ago, uh, then you have to report it. Leave it up to us, CPS, Child Protective Service, to determine whether or not it's important. You, know, you as a mandated reporter are not trained to determine whether or not it's a valid report or not. Just make the report. Now, I've talked to CPS people, and what they'll say is, in situations like that, unless you can determine, because it always comes down to risk, like, is, this, is the perpetrator at risk of harming other people? And if it was so long ago, blah, 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 sometimes it's like, well, don't, don't bother making the report. But, if, but officially, the law, it, it often doesn't have that, that caveat. So the therapist that you were talking to, uh, anonymous patron, might have been operating under that law that she has to make that report. Uh, that you talked about a childhood trauma. From your description, it sounds like maybe you were in your 20s or something when you made this report, and you know it wasn't that long ago in the grand scheme of things. And this person could be out there abusing other people. So a strict adherence to the law might be that she has to make the report, but... That's not the way it was delivered to you, or at least that's not the way that you have in your narrative. In the narrative, she was scolding you and pressuring you to make that report. And that she was, so one way to say it as a therapist is, you know what, I'm really sorry, um, but I have to make a report. And this is why uh, a proper disclosure statement and a proper discussion at the beginning of therapy is so important. I can't tell you how many times I've tried to drill this into my supervisees that clients don't know are mandated reporting laws. And if you glance over it very quickly, they're not likely to retain it. So you have to remind people, particularly in the, in the beginning of therapy, that you are a mandated reporter. So this person who wrote in was, was probably told in writing at the very least that the therapist was a mandated reporter. But she probably it probably didn't really get into her head and that's normal most people it doesn't really get into their head so it's very important as therapists 
so that people have informed consent, which is in all of our ethical codes, that just because you have it in your disclosure statement, even if you kind of went over it in the first session, you got to remind people, particularly when they start to launch into these stories. So what I do and what I recommend people do, and there's different styles depending on your sort of ethical stance on this, but I want clients to be in the driver's seat. I don't want to be in the driver's seat when it comes to this sort of thing. So when people start to tell me a story, they're like, yeah, so when I was a kid, my older brother, and then I'll stop people and I'll say, one, we have to, I want to stop you right there. I want to hear this story. I do. But I want to make sure, one, that you're not going to re-traumatize yourself. That's a whole sort of uh, effort that I've already gone over. But the other thing that I say is, I also want to remind you that I'm a mandated reporter. And if you tell me about a child being abused, even if it was a long time ago, I might be legally obligated to make a report within 48 hours. And it's completely out of my hands. And so if you want to tell me information that will obligate me by law to make a report, then go for it. Absolutely. And we can make that report together or I'll make it by myself or you can make it by yourself or whatever it is. But I want you as the client to be in the driver's seat driver's seat about that disclosure, particularly for adults anyway, but for kids too. Anyway, the point is, is that, uh, that's my style. Some people don't have that style, but that's what I, that's what I want to do. It sounds like you anonymous patient were not given that opportunity. You launched into this story thinking that it was not going to be a mandated reporting situation. So you weren't properly given, uh, information. So you didn't enter into the relationship of, with the therapist with proper informed consent. When clients sign the disclosure statement and provide consent to treatment, they must be informed. That's the part of informed consent. Just misinformed consent is not good enough. The client has to be informed properly. And you can't just say, well, it was, you know, it's in my disclosure statement. If they don't read it, it's up to them. No, that does not hold up in court. It doesn't hold up in any moral or ethical sense either. Therapists need to describe this in detail, and they might have to remind them five sessions in, 50 sessions in, oh, it sounds like you're about to tell me a story that might mandate my reporting. And I just want to remind you that I'm a mandated reporter. If you want to tell me that story and mandate that I report, then great. But I just want to make sure that you're in the driver's seat. Informed consent, people. Very important. If you were a client who didn't know about mandated reporting, wouldn't you want to be informed about that sufficiently so that you can head into a situation knowing what's happening? Now, there are nuances, obviously, because the laws and the mandated reporting is set up to actually save people from abuse. And so sometimes there are caveats to that. But, but anyway, the primary thing here for this client going into therapy is that the client have a good relationship with a therapist so that they can get the treatment they need. And the, the mandated reporting issue got in the way of them developing a, a relationship. Uh, and so there should have been more informed consent, one. Two, the therapist should have said, look, it's on me. I have to make this report. So I'm sort of pressuring you to do it right now, but really it's, it's on me to do it. And it would be good if you did it. So I've had conversations with clients like that before. So, but you do it in a way that doesn't make the client feel scolded. See, the anonymous patron is saying like, um, you know, is, is this normal? And I would say that 
it's common enough, as you say, you know, is it an unfortunate common occurrence? And I would say yes. Uh, I would imagine a lot of people listening have had similar experiences where they felt blindsided by this mandated reporting law. They disclose something to the therapist and they have vague memories of being told about mandated reporting in the first session, but they definitely didn't retain that. And they told the story thinking that it was going to be kept confidential. And then all of a sudden, boom, the therapist says, oh, by the way, everything you just told me, I have to, I have to tell the government. <laughs> I have to call the government of this state and tell them everything you just said, give names, addresses, and then the government of CPS, you know, DSHS, is going to do their job, which God knows what that means. Now, they're there to help, but just imagine that you suffer from victimization, and then, boom, all of a sudden, you're being victimized by the system again, and by the therapist that's there supposed to help you. And it's the first time you've opened up. <laughs> It's just an awful situation. The other thing that you say, the therapist said was, uh, she told me there was no way I was going to be able to heal without reporting the abuse. And I was robbing my parents of the opportunity to comfort me. So I've heard this myth before. It's ridiculous. There's this, it, what it basically is, in my estimation, is the therapist is having countertransference around the uh, the abuse they're, they're just thinking oh my god there's like this abuser out there that's just roaming the wild and could could hurt other people and because of their anxiety they they become very uh, counter transference e about forcing the client to make the report it's similar to if uh, someone comes up to you and says someone mugged me on the streets the other day and you're like oh did you call the cops and the person's like, eh, I didn't really call the cops because, I don't know, what are the cops going to be able to do? Well, there's this compulsion as a listener to just be like, call the cops, do it, do it, do it. And the, because we just, we fear on safety and we want justice and we have this notion that justice happens, <laughs> which it doesn't always happen. Anyway, so so a lot of therapists will do that. Another thing is that that it's just a myth that's been going around. I remember hearing this myth, and I think I even maybe propagated it in the beginning of my, of my career, that a major component of healing from your abuse is actually making that report, is calling CPS or calling the police, which is absolutely true for some people, but not generalizable to everyone who's been through uh, you know, abuse. So that's, it's an unfortunate common myth that I've, seen, I've heard. The other uh, problem here is robbing my parents the opportunity to comfort me. It's another myth that I've heard. It's, it's, it's somewhat, it can be true. Certainly for some clients, you might say, you know what? Um, you deserve for your parents to know so that they can comfort you about this. But in no way would you ever make someone feel pressured to tell their family. Um, the other thing that you say here is you spent six months or so experiencing acute trauma symptoms and ended up developing some sexual compulsive behavior. I want to highlight this to all the clinicians listening. If you don't understand this or you haven't gotten proper training is this is what happens when you don't pay someone. This is what happens when you don't actually understand trauma and you don't actually understand PTSD and reading a book on PTSD or Treating one or two people kind of with PTSD does not necessarily constitute 
knowing PTSD. This is what happens when you go too fast in therapy. This is what happens when you don't stop clients from talking about their traumas and you just let them talk about their traumas. Six months of acute trauma symptoms, distress, flashbacks, depression, anxiety. And she also said sexually compulsive behavior. Six months because a therapist said she specialized in trauma and actually didn't know what she was doing. (laughs) This is the problem that we have in our society. Now, Patron, I'm so glad that you're in therapy with someone you like right now. Fan-effing-tastic. So happy for you. And I'm so sorry that this happened to you. And you ask, is this a rare occasion or is this an unfortunate common occurrence? Unfortunately, it's an unfortunate common occurrence. It's decreasing, I think, over time as we change our field. But, you know, it's there. And I'm so sorry that happened. Okay, this next email says, I have a question about dissociation and attachment. I have dissociative identity disorder. I've never felt like I was one unified person. My sense of self has always been split into separate and distinct parts that can operate at various levels of consciousness at any given time. Some of these parts are more familiar with each other, while others are radically different in their interests, values, ways of seeing the world, and even how they interact with others. While the memory issues and blackouts aren't nearly as bad as they used to be, switching can be can still be extremely uncomfortable and disorienting. So another, just chiming in, the switching from alters uh, can be extremely uncomfortable and disorienting. Uh, going on with the email. During this quarantine, I have noticed something interesting, though. I switch considerably less when I'm alone and not interacting with other people. When I'm alone, I feel much more grounded and unified. It's not until I start interacting with people, especially on a more intimate level, that these dissociative symptoms start to spiral. So my question is, can dissociative identity disorder be considered a type of attachment injury? Do you have any thoughts on as to do you have any thoughts as to why just interacting with people is such a trigger for me? End of email. Well, the short answer is I don't know for you, anonymous patron, because that would be complicated, as I hope everyone understands that it's, everyone's different. But generally speaking, absolutely. People, uh, so early childhood trauma that results in dissociative identity disorder typically is complex in that it was with someone who was in your family. And so it's someone that you had a love, uh, familial relationship with. And thus relationships can be a cause uh, can be a trigger for symptoms of any type of dissociation or any type of complex PTSD. So it stands to reason absolutely that as you interact with people, it's there's more triggers. And when you're at home and there's more safety and, and more able to ground yourself, then there are fewer triggers. And that you say, you know, could it be considered, can dissociative identity disorder be considered a type of attachment injury? Absolutely. If it's one thing I hope everyone understands, and if it's one thing that I've come to learn in all my investigations, is that trauma and attachment are one and the same. Uh, Not, well, they overlap considerably, especially the traumas that we often talk about on this podcast. So... So scratch that I said one and the same. That's ridiculous. Because <laughs> if you get in a car accident, that's not an attachment injury. Uh, I guess you could stretch the definition of attachment injury. But 
but considerable overlap again, particularly with the things we're talking about. When one goes through relational traumas and it results in borderline personality disorder, for example, that is attachment absolutely 100%. Next question from Pepe, they write, did Ted Bundy have a dissociative disorder? So it's an interesting question, impossible for me to know, but from this documentary that was pretty long, it's like the Bundy tapes, I think it was on Netflix, and there's these uh, audio cassette tapes of him talking about his own experience. And it's possible that he did because he describes an episode in which he kind of became another person and he was really disjointed. It was after, it was before he had killed anyone, I think. And he was being, he'd, he'd been dumped by his girlfriend and he was, you know, in college age around there. And he describes a, an episode for a number of months where he was kind of another, in another state. So it's possible it was a mild form or one of those other specified dissociative disorder uh, types, one of those grab bag types. Uh, I always interpreted it as uh, disorganized attachment reactivity. Um, listen to you know my episode on the psychology of Ten Buddy for more information on that. All right, this final email is from patron Cass from Bloomington, Indiana. They write. Recently, I stumbled upon an interesting Instagram community, people who either have been diagnosed with DID or believe that they have DID. They create Instagram accounts for their systems and follow each other, create posts and stories about their systems, and make spaces for their different alters to introduce themselves and talk about their experiences as individual identities. If you search the tag, hashtag DID systems on Instagram, you can find some of these accounts. I find that there are similar communities on Tumblr and Facebook groups. I personally went down a rabbit hole when I found these communities and was honestly a bit disturbed. I wonder if these folks, therapists, know about these accounts, and if so, how would they view them? I know very little about DID treatment. End of email. Yeah. So I just uh, looked at it briefly right now, and the DID systems hashtag on Instagram it's mainly people posting things like like one person has a Venn diagram, people with eating disorders, and there's another circle, DID systems, and then another one, trans- transitioning transgender individuals, and then in the middle it says avoiding mirrors. I don't know. You kind of have to see it. It's just if you've ever been in these kinds of mental health Reddit, subreddits, or Facebook groups, it's similar kind of stuff. Um, one person uh, posted are my, are my alters distinct enough? I'm not sure what they mean. Another per- person po- posted, uh, so there are these like scary looking skeletons and it says the alters who the protectors hide from everyone. And then there's some nice people and it says the alters who front regularly. Um, and then uh, some other people have posted different, like um, you can make, anime avatars for yourself right you can choose like the the color of your hair and the way your face looks and your clothes and i'm guessing someone went to some anime generator and they made a bunch of uh, avatars for their different uh, alters and they have different names and so they post that and what this patron cast is also saying that uh, the different alters will have different instagram accounts which makes total sense right uh to it, 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 with dissociative identity disorder, uh, 
the different altars, they absolutely feel like they are distinct pe- people, that they are completely different from their altars. Not always, but it's usually that's how it is. And so to use one of your altars Instagram accounts would feel like you're creeping on their Instagram account. Now, some families, you know, you'll see some old couples will use the same Instagram account, that, that kind of thing. But uh, anyway, so it's not uncommon for people. To, but the point is, it's like people usually want their own Instagram account. And for different DID alters, it's the same for them as well. So that's not unusual. It's also uh, totally normal for alters to communicate with each other in person and on social media. And since we have social media now, it's this kind of interesting phenomenon where the same person with their systems, they might have 10 different Instagram accounts for 10 different alters, and each alter communicates differently uh, and maybe even to each other over social media, which actually could be a very functional way of managing DID, which is to help them to get to know each other, to work together. You know, one person was talking about teamwork and this kind of thing. And, you know, we use social media to bond people and to share. And and so it could be that. I'm guessing what is, you know, you say that made you feel disturbed is that it's DID. It has a lot of stigma around it. And it's been associated with very scary things, movies and and mental illness in general, it just feels very spooky, right? And it might feel very scary to you to see people just out in the open being public about their DID and about their different alters. It can feel scary, but there's nothing to be afraid of. You know, you feel disturbed, which is normal given the cultural understanding of DID and mental illness in general, but there's nothing to be afraid of. In fact, It's probably the result of a lot of health. It's probably the result of a lot of destigmatization for that individual, that they're able to be public about it. I think it's a wonderful thing. I mean, I'm not going to approve of every single thing on this hashtag. I mean, it's the internet, so God knows. But uh, the other part of the disturbance that you might be feeling is that there's this notion that people with DID are supposed to integrate and that for them to be celebrating their DID is somehow celebrating in their uh, dysfunction. But we now know that, and that's an old uh, notion that, frankly, a lot of therapists still hold. But, it's, but that's not the way the experts uh, think these days, is that for most people with DID, the end goal is just this, is for the alters to uh, exist in distinct uh, you know, forms of, uh, apart from each other. But for them to work together, for them to destigmatize themselves, for them to be not ashamed, for them to communicate with each other, for them to do everything that everyone else does, which includes maybe having an Instagram account. So that's what I'll say about that. All right, people, it's been quite a journey. Up to three hours of talking. My voice is shredded. <laughs> um, and boy, was it a journey. I will tell you, <laughs> full disclosure, that yesterday I started this episode and recorded for like an hour and a half and hated everything I was saying. So I started over. (laughs) I do that sometimes where I just like, uh, I don't think my brain is working quite right today. And because podcasting, my brain has to be in, you know, optimal uh, situations 
that I can't even come up with words to describe. If there's any kind of tiredness or any kind of mood problem or any kind of um, annoyance in my life, like that my animals are bugging me or something, <laughs> then everything gets thrown off. And so I'm glad that I got... Um, and also, full disclosure, I didn't just talk for three hours straight. I'd, I've been recording this podcast all day long, I don't know, 10 hours or something. And so I would take breaks and take a nap and also kind of refine my notes and look at other things. And so I don't know, I feel like I've been on a journey myself today. And really for the past few months, um, investigating this deep dive, it's it's been interesting. So I hope it's clear as to why I'm including this in the loneliness series, because it Obviously, dissociation can create a lot of loneliness, but it is, in essence, loneliness. Uh, in uh, the, it's you know, it's a very lonely experience to be pulled away from the world, to be pulled away from yourself, to be pulled away from um, you know the worlds to protect yourself. And the condition can feel very lonely because when people describe it before they become aware of the fact that it's a it's a thing that a lot of people have. It can be very isolating. All right, people, let me know what you think. Did I make any mistakes? Can you relate to anything? Do you have any experiences yourself of dissociating? Um, and like I've been saying, trigger warning. Uh, I've been saying that throughout this episode. And uh, so be careful about what you email me because you don't want to re-traumatize yourself. And everybody out there, please take care of yourself and take care of others because you deserve it. You really, really do. 